Welcome back to Stories Out of Time and Space. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly. And, <clears throat> excuse me, as always, joined uh, by uh, the irrepressible, the the companion of all time, Julian Darius. Julian, how are you doing? You all right? I'm doing fine. I've been relegated to being your companion. You're uh, journeying through I, time and space, and I'm along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think sometimes I think we'll get to the companions as we talk in this. I think sometimes the companions are actually more important than the doctor. Well, and also, you know, I don't know how much, um, you know, I have to to say about these different serials. I think that uh, I think that you'll have a better perspective on sort of how the doctors differ and things like that. Well, then we'll see, because I think it's it's it's. um... They are vastly different. I mean, before we before we get into it, we should highlight this is obviously we've done our classic retrospective. Uh, we've gone through all the doctors of the original sort of run. Um, this is what is it? Um, I can't remember. Hartnell, Troughton, Pertwee, um, Baker, um, Davison, Baker, and McCoy. There you go. Did it seven. Wow. Um, yeah, we've gone through all, and uh, we're now going to be a wrap up of all that and the stories that we sort of we've talked about, uh, but not just the specific stories, but those are a wider sort of thing, that classic run and what's it told us about that really. Um, but yeah, the, you, we'll get to the Doctor because the Doctor is an interesting character, sort of like how his or what his objective or the point of the Doctor and how he changed, I think, over time, um, to, to for the different well, for different purposes. Um, but overall, before we start, let's just get a bit of an overview opinion on that classic era. I think you watched, you've probably watched much more than I have. I think overall, um, what, what you know, having done this retrospective and stuff now, has it changed your opinion on the the classic era, or are you? What are your thoughts on it? I, I think it was really fun watching these because you know I don't think that any of them are great, but mm. I think that they were surprisingly watchable. Having mm. sat there and watched whole seasons of classic Doctor Who, it gets a slog after a while. Um, yeah, and so it was really it was really fun going back and and isolating these uh, more celebrated episodes and seeing you know seeing some of the evolution, especially by jumping from Doctor to Doctor, and you know all of these were were solid to enjoyable. Um, mm. And I also think that from my perspective, you see a remarkable evolution because we're really watching the evolution of of television and specifically British television, um, mm. you know, over the course of 25 years. Um, and so, you know, I do think there is an increased sophistication and it's really clear to see, you know, how much of uh, maturation goes on and how much of an improvement goes on on the 
especially the script level. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The story has become a lot more complex and a bit more sort of challenging in some cases. I think they sort of they offer up some sort of um, positions that aren't as clear cut. Like some of the early ones really do offer up some quite sort of clear cut, um, you know, black and white, literally um, <laughs> sort of stories. But also, I think one of the things that's interesting is is like I said was my, was my key point of. of that I came back to on a number of occasions was how much like the doctor sort of leaves in his wake. Yes. Um, where he's like, solved that one, time to leave. And there's sort of like an entire society in ruins having to rebuild itself. Um, so I, I, it was interesting to see that. And I'd be interested to sort of, as you know, we go through some of these stories and sort of touch on that, how much that seems to come back. Um but I like, I like your point you make about how much how this matures as a show. Um, and I think how sort of it, it grows up a little. And I don't know if that's because they were a bit aware of, oh, okay, our, our audience isn't, you know, who it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we, we need to sort of look at it again. But there's definitely some darker elements that seem to come into it towards the end that, that aren't there in those early sort of um, Doctors. Um, yeah, I think also more social awareness. I mean, mm. the, the the plot holes are, you know, if not less, at least the writers are more aware of them. Yes, <laughs> uh, they're sort of addressed. I mean, that issue that um, you you keep talking about, rightly so, about sort of the destruction left in the Doctor's wake. Uh, you know, right? You know, jolly good. We've had a good adventure here. Um, off to the next one. And meanwhile, there <laughs> yeah. are children in the rubble going, food, please. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, you know, the show has become more conscious of that. And, and I think you could see that directly in these uh, episodes, especially in the fascist style episodes, as mm. um, there is more of a sort of social consciousness, not in a sort of liberal way, but just in a, a sense of an awareness of the effect on a society. Yeah, well, I think the last two um, really sort of highlighted that was Avengers on, on Varos, I think, and and his mm-hmm. check um, and um, Remembrance, Remembrance of, the of the Daleks really sort of hit into those sort of um, those bits and pieces. I mean, one of them literally literally had characters talking to us through their interpretation about the collapse of their society. Um, mm. You know, we was we were watching these people sort of go, and it ends with them going, oh, "What do we do now? Like, what happens next?" Um, and then, obviously, Remembrance of the Daleks has um, the Doctor revisiting things from the heart, and going back. And so there was that, like I say, that sort of like meta acknowledgement of, um, yeah, things get left in the wake, like things get left behind. Um, and so, I, I do think you're right. I think there's a bit more of social awareness. Um, by the time you get to that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the going back to the beginning is also like you can even see the beginnings of nostalgia coming in, yes. right? Like, I mean, there's there's a remarkable amount of continuity for a show that mm-hmm. really didn't have a very strong continuity. <laughs> but there are a lot of winks toward it. There's a lot of um, care, a surprising amount of care given to continuity. But I think really you do see that evolution that by the end, what a perfect way to end on to have 
nostalgia coming in and, mm. you know, this real celebration of the past coming in. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you know, one of the things that's, that's most interesting, you talk about the nostalgia, and it's right because it just almost goes up full circle with remembrance, is also, though, that the, the way it sort of wants to look forward um because although you have got that sort of sense of going back to the 60s, its origins and that sort of thing, it's then countered by Ace, who you know, is meant to be like a rebellious sort of like, I don't know, 16-year-old or whatever. And she's acting as this sort of like, you know, punk kid from the 80s who's sort of meant to act as this counter to to this nostalgia. Like she doesn't experience this nostalgia. She's going like, what is this nonsense? What do you mean, <laughs> you know, like no coloreds or like, you know, what's this weirdness from the 60s? And so it does have that sort of feel of going, yes, we've got nostalgia, but don't forget, like, it wasn't all great in that time. And it seems to have that balance that sort of, I suppose, other shows don't always have. Yeah, and that gets into, you know, one of the things that we've talked about off air and, you know, that especially fascinates you as far as, you know, how when we look at nostalgia, there's this sort of, like, legacy character, right? There's mm. got to be those new eyes that come in and question all of this, you know, and, and represent that next generation. And I think in a sense, Ace is that audience identification yes. character for the new viewers. Yeah, and that's, uh, well, this again comes to this idea of what the companion is, is that uh, identification character. Like, you know, that was always the case, even back into sort of like, you know, if you do go back to sort of the heart and all, and even the Cushing uh, years, Peter Cushing, year, you know, the, the films, the entry point is, is you know, we have those characters. Like, you know, uh, the Doctor's granddaughter is there. She's a part of the, the Matrix. Like, the, But you then introduce through sort of like these are the characters that are taken on the journeys. Um, and it, like with Peter Cushing, it's um, the, the you know, what's it, the, the policeman. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have all those moments of like the, the, the companion is, this is what I was saying before about the companion being more important because they act as the sort of, they're our entry point. They're the counter to the weirdness that's going on. You know, they're the ones that sort of get taken to the planet and they're going like, this is either wondrous, this is terrifying, or this is you know crazy, whatever. Um, they're your sort of like touch point. And when they work well, they work really well. When they don't work at all, they seem to just disappear into the background. <laughs> like, there was an awful lot. And you know, that yes, there were stories. I'm trying to think of, was it the Davidson? Like he had um, uh, the young lad who was killed in Earthshock. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's from a, yes, he was from a different planet, but he still he was still acting as a sort of a, a youth contact. And then he had the others, those two, the two women, um, and it was like, oh, it's because there were several companions. It was like this isn't their story. Don't worry about them. They'll have mm -hmm. another story. They'll have another story later. Um, and so they sort of fall into the background. And so you sort of seem to get this thing of. You know, um, either companions either stand out and stand, you know, um, toe to toe with the Doctor, or they don't seem to register at all. I mean, Sarah Jane um, is a really good example of like she stands almost out as, as, as the, probably the companion from the classic era. You know, like she's always up there as the, the companion, um, and so you know you need to be able to stand toe to toe and standing toe to toe with sort of like you know with the uh, what's it Baker in that situation is it is, is, is no mean feat so mm -hmm. it's interesting how those entry points work um, and how often you know in those eras that, that, that it, was, it was young women 
of agency. Like, you know, Sarah Jane was a journalist. We had teachers. We had, all right, we had an air stewardess, but that's a different story. But like, <laughs> Ace is a young student who seems to be, you know, smarter than she thinks she is. Like, they all have agency. They all seem to have um, a purpose. You know, apart from Bonnie Tyler, we never covered her, and I'm quite glad because I find the woman incredibly irritating. But I don't know. It's it, not Bonnie Tyler. Bonnie Langford, sorry. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The companions actually fascinate me in that sense of how when they work, they really work. Um, but it's a real fine yeah. balance. I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I think that the the companions sort of let you change the doctor without changing the doctor in a way. Yes. Like if we think of the, each doctor as kind of a reaction to the last doctor, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in somewhat the same way that sort of each president has to be understood mm. as a reaction to the last. Um, you know, the companions sort of let you tweak along the edges and um, and have these additional points of reference and and change the tone or the the feel of the show without changing the lead. Um, mm. And I think getting at your point about the episodes that really work are able to, uh, I think, use the, usually, they're able to use the companion as a sort of point of view character, not only for the audience, but also for uh, the culture or, you know, what it is that you're dealing with. Sometimes they're the ones who are scared, you know, and the mm. doctor isn't. And so that, that brings the, the drama forward in a way. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes in the in the bad episodes, you sort of think like, well, this companion, like this companion is from the future. This shouldn't yeah. be scary Shocking. to them. Yeah. Right. Um, and it seems as if the writer sometimes forgets the, the companion's backgrounds. But I think when they do remember the companion's backgrounds, the companions are able to sort of form a little network of different points of view on the same episode that gives you this kind of insight into what's happening and mm. uh, and allow you to explore the implications of the episode from multiple points of view, not just to be, well, we got to figure out something for so-and-so to do. Yeah. And I like say they, they, uh, I think this is where we, we, we didn't really, we weren't really able to get into it other than, uh, um, I can't remember the lad's name, or whatever the character's name, the one that died in Earthshock. The re the rest of the companions have very much been earthbound, you know. They've been and they've been contemporary as well to the show, <clears throat> and that's clearly intentional. And as you say, sort of when it leans away from that, it becomes a bit more difficult because they also sort of take away that that sort of entry point. You need almost that contemporary or that sort of vision point, you know, that, that um, point of view to be able to sort of sympathise with them. Um, and as you say, if you make them alien or you make them into the future or something else, it sort of almost attaches them a little bit in that sense as well like it makes sense that you know this alien that travels through time and space shouldn't just have human companions from the year the show's mm. been aired right but it's also a tv show that people have to watch <laughs> so yeah swings well, and roundabouts alas poor Audric. we hardly knew That's me it. Yeah. you know um yeah no i i hear what you're saying the but the other thing we haven't mentioned is the evolution of the doctor himself um mm. and you know, when you look at Hartnell, and I'm a huge fan of the the Hartnell stuff and the, and the early dynamic of the show, um, and even format, um, I, I really dig it, and it's always really um, resonated with me. But you see, I mean, the by the by the end, the Doctor is an action hero. 
I mean, yes. by the end, the doctor is Han Solo, you know, <laughs> um, and that is and, and that is a slow evolution. Um, I mean, e even like the the Baker years, the, the classic Baker years when, you know, the doctor is has much more agency in the episodes, but he seems strangely aloof uh, mm -hmm. and he's sort of like evolving from the utter remove of Hartnell, who seems more interested in standing by and watching and studying it than and being curmudgeon-y. No, I, I, I agree, because this is actually something I was, I was thinking about, the changing position of the Doctor. Because I think it, also, it, it changed with the intent of the show. Because that, you, you, as you pointed out, right, if you said at the very beginning, sort of that first Hartnell, the Aztecs, it has drama and it has action and adventure and all those bits and pieces. And we sort of talked about some of it's good, some of it's not so good, but that sort of comes with, you know, time and age. But it's an educator. The point of the Doctor was to be an educator. It was an educational show. It's sort of like, you may have learned about the Aztecs at school. Here's some other information wrapped up in a story about Aztec culture. And we've got some intrigue and stuff going on, but, you know, there's going to be exposition dumps where we go, ah, this is an Aztec coin, or ah, this is how Aztec women were created, or priestesses, or whatever, like, you know. So the point of the doctor, you said there's to stand by and take note, was well, that's because he was an educator. That was the, uh -huh. the sort of the objective. And you see that change with Troughton when they're like, okay, he's still not going to be, he's not going to be, you know, John McClane yet, but <laughs> he's a bit more impish and he's a bit more sort of thingy, but it's still very much the, the action in that one, in, in um, uh, the of the, uh, the Macro Terror was still driven by the companions. You know, yes. all the all the running and the fighting is very much driven by the companions, and he has the ideas, but it's very much driven by the companions. Um, so there's still that little bit of the Hartnell intent there. It's not until Pertwee, like the, the third Doctor, when they're like, "You're not going to travel anywhere because we can't afford it, and <laughs> we're, gonna, we're sort of going to go down the Avengers route or the new Avengers route. You, you know, you're going to know karate, and you're going to have a, a you know a, a funky yellow car to the Tardis and all this stuff that they really sort of they were like, okay, well if we can't do the educator thing, we're going to go, we're going to start leaning into this other thing, and I think that's where the transition really starts to take place. Um, but I think that, that that's where the sort of you see this all the time, don't you? Sort of like the entertainment aspect is always gets ramped up um, in all these shows, um, and characters become more of that character. I mean, I, I, call, I often call this. This is something I've talked about with Alex before. This, this is what I call the Homer effect. Um, this is where a character, you know, so in, in the original sort of Simpsons, Bart was the star. It was uh -huh. always supposed to be about, it was the Bart show. You know, you had, like, you had the music, the Bartman, do the Bartman, and sort of like, you uh -huh. know, it was all about Bart Simpson. And then all of a sudden, everyone was like, oh, no, wait a minute, Homer Simpson is the funny one. And so the focus of Homer becomes more Homerish, you know, becomes daft. Uh -huh. It happened with like Joey Tribbiani and Friends. Oh, he's funny when he's stupid. Let's make him more stupid. Right. And so those things get ramped up. And I think over time, the same thing happened with the Doctor, where they're like, Oh, the educator thing sort of passe. He needs to be more entertainment. And so that's where they're sort of like, okay, the doctor needs to become more. This thing gets ramped up and that sort of like staggers over time. It's the same sort of effect, I think. Well, you managed to mention two of the shows that I most hate in human history <laughs> uh, The Simpsons and Friends. Um, you know, having said that, I mean, you know, I think of like 
Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties, right? Not mm. being the focus. There it shifted from the parents to the kids, right? Mm. As opposed to vice versa. Um, but shows have to find their focus and then let those characters evolve or let them yeah. be sort of more successful versions of themselves. Um, usually they don't get, uh, you know, three decades to <laughs> keep evolving in. Um, and, and that's really remarkable to see. Yeah, I, the thing is, uh, this is where I got this this quote in. I, I want to talk to this quote shortly, and maybe it, it might actually sort of generate something. But it's not just what you meant the doctor meant to the show. It's what the doctor meant to Britain. Because mm. uh, and, and before we get, because one of the things I often, often we think about, we sort we talked about it a little bit. In fact, we talked about it with the Daleks more than anything, especially with the sixties. Was like there was the iconography um, of Doctor Who. Like, you know, we've said before um, in other things, you know, you, you, if, you can, if you can give someone the silhouette of a character and they know who that character is, then you've cracked it. Like, you know, that's like, everyone knows the Batman silhouette. Everyone can, you, know, you could do it with like Judge Dredd. There's other characters you can go, oh, yeah, I recognize that. You give the silhouette of the TARDIS or a Dalek or a Cyberman. Like, mm-hmm. you know, lots of people are going to go, oh, I know what that is. A Dalek in particular. It's so. I can, you know, iconic. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of like they, that's one of the things I think where Doctor Who really triumphed is it nailed, even for each of the doctors, like each of the doctors has got such an iconic look, for good or bad. You know, like you can go, oh yeah, well, what, what do you know about this doctor? You know, like, uh, and I think, you know, uh, what's it, Tom Baker's is probably the most, <laughs> the, the most where they, they were like, okay, we're going to n- nail this. I and mean, that's where the, the, you know, that sort of goes off the bo- boil a bit, but it's like jelly beans, uh, jelly babies, the scarf, the hat, you know, that sort of like the, the you know, that it becomes that thing. The mm-hmm. costume becomes the character sort of thing. Um, and I, But I find out that, that, that there's an iconography that just becomes so intrinsic to British science fiction culture um, that it's, you know, it's, you can't separate the two. And so at one point, most people were prepping for this. I was like, "How did Doctor Who? How did Doctor Who uh, influence British culture? And then how? But how did British culture sort of inf- influence Doctor Who? And also, I was trying to think because he starts. You said he starts as this educator. And I know I'm talking, so I'll shut up in a minute. But he starts as his educator and becomes this other thing. But what's this other thing? What is this other character? Come on, I was trying to define it, and it wasn't until I listened to this other podcast that it really sort of hit home as to what he is. Because um, I was like, okay, like you know, he's the wandering knight, so he's quite, you know, is that like chivalric? Is he sort of like a knight errant, or you know, like you get the Ronin, you know, they're sort of like the even in the Wild West, you have the man with no name sort of thing. He's not that, but he's still doing that. Like he wanders from place to place, solving problems. He, you know, he's mm-hmm. sort of the unfortunately the great white hope you know he comes in save that white you know the white white savior trope unfortunately uh until hopefully the next doctor but mm-hmm. comes in save saves the day leaves right that's the intent that's the episodic intent and nature of these stories but what makes him what makes him intrinsically british and i was trying to think about it and i was like it's almost like this sort of idiotic arrogance that he has <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I, I, I know what you mean, yeah. Well, like, he walks in and he's sort of like, within a couple of scenes, like everyone seems to know that he's in charge, but they're not sure why. 
you know what I mean? It's like he's walked in in a high vis jacket with a clipboard and a hard hat, and everyone's gone. Mm. Well, he knows what he's. He clearly knows what he's talking about. We'll follow him. <laughs> it's the British class thing, right? Exactly. Like, yes. I. I it, it's hardwired in the DNA to just, uh, you know, defer to one's betters, quote unquote. <laughs> and yeah. the doctor is, you know, walks into a room and he's the boss. He, he, he instinctively knows that he's the smartest one in the room. And he yeah, has that air of arrogance. See, that's really weird because, um, and, you know, and I, I'd love to go back and, and, and talk about the, the Hartnell formula and stuff. But, you know, as far as like how that evolution, you know, gets to that position you're talking about arrogance you're talking about sort of being allowed and taking charge those sound like quintessential american tropes right we love you're talking about like the western right the man with no name you know uh indiana jones i mean you know it's not that look i mean like dan dare existed within a system and he was the best pilot but and people deferred to him but he was never a swaggering adventurer, right? The idea of somebody who can just go anywhere and, you know, we have that love of charisma, right? Of like, yeah, Yeah. you're not experienced. You never went to school for this, but, you know, you sound really confident, so let's put you in charge. To me, that sounds like a very American thing and less... It is, is, but I think where it becomes British, and I think this actually goes back to a lot of these sorts of characters... That become very that are very British, and I think again I'm going to mention the name Quatermass, like it's the same thing. Uh, but I'd also think of even earlier characters that are very British, um, Miss Marple, uh, Hercule Poirot, those sort of Agatha Christie detectives, and there's other detectives with a similar thing. One of the things that I think sort of mirrors that thing because Poirot is a really good example of the same thing. Poirot is an early iteration of the Doctor in a similar way. Like, you know, his reputation and his arrogance and sort of like, you know, um, fastidiousness of things is what drives, you know, he takes over the investigation. Like, you know, even Sherlock Holmes has this same thing, the arrogance, the sort of aloofness that we've talked about. You talked about with the Tom Baker, that aloofness. One of the things that balances all of that out is whimsy. Mm, mm hmm. To stop the, the thing that stops it being American and being sort of and this and, 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 I, I would I'll compare it to American type characters that do these same things. Let's say the John Waynes or um, other, other characters of the era that did this, these TV shows that would do a similar thing of going from place to place to save the day. Is whimsy? Is these are not intense sort of stories? They, they can be quite intense stories, but there's always this sort of sense of like slight silliness with the Doctor. You know, even in, in they've sort of perfected it a little bit more in the sort of the new who. You know, even the doctor they refer to him as sort of in the Matt uh, the Matt Smith there as the silly man in the box. You know, raggedy mm-hmm. man in the box. Like, there's an element of silliness with it, but you do, you also know that part of that is a sort of as a as a, a facade. That silliness is almost like a bit of a facade for something that sits behind all of that. And I think that's a part of this as well. Um, because he's he's almost like an, he's an anti-establishment, isn't he? The doctor, he's anti- and this is something else I wanted to speak to to the different eras. This era, you said about Dan Dare exists within the system. Well, during Classic Who, so does the Doctor. But the Time Lords exist. You know, he's not the last of the Time Lords like he is with the New Who. Mm-hmm. He exists within Time Lord culture. Yet he still does all this stuff. I mean, um, you know, uh, Genesis of the Daleks. He's literally sent there as a hitman to go oh, yeah. kill. 
just to set the whole thing up by the Time Lords. But I think that's the only episode of uh, these seven plus the movie that we've looked at this uh, this segment that involved the Time Lords. Um, mm. I mean, like, in theory, he's part of a system, but until you get to, like, you know, trial of a Time Lord, you know, uh, or something like that, you know, he doesn't seem integrated into it. Yeah. Um, but I like what you were saying about whimsy. And that's a that's a very important thing, and that does strike me as very British. It's yes. not in everything British, but but you know there is, you know there is a um, maybe it's a manifestation of this sort of not liking people who are too uh, have too much braggadocio, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like you know. Everyone needs to, you know, have the piss taken out of them occasionally. You yes. know, this sort of like British, you know, the same thing of question time, right? Just like we're going to grill you, and you know, yeah. and you know, we don't subject our our heroes, whether they're John Wayne or you know the president or you know, um, you know, titan of industry or Ayn Randian, you know, sort of titans to that kind of. You know, they don't have that kind of whimsy. If they do, it's, you know, it, it's not intrinsic to them. It's just, you no. know, well, they like M&Ms or something, you know. Yeah. It's something silly. Um, but, well, it's silly in the sense of, like, it, it doesn't feel intrinsic. There is a sort of, like, British desire to take the piss out of it or sort of wink at the camera and say, Yes. We, we're not, I'm not taking myself too seriously. God it's forbid. That's the thing, the Doctor never takes himself too seriously. But when they do, and this is when you think about this, the Doctors, if you were to take the sort of like the favourite Doctors, uh, even, well, maybe so, but the, the, the lesser preferred Doctors take themselves more seriously, or they're too silly. You know, let, mm. let's think about sort of, we talked about McCoy, when when uh, Sylvester McCoy first becomes a Doctor, there's that sort of um, time of the Rani, like he's pratfalling, it's all very silly, and everyone hates that. It's not until it's sort of the second season that he sort of lands and becomes that Machiavellian sort of like uh, schema that sort of is much preferred. But the other end of that, I think, is the second Baker um, that is known as the Angry Doctor, and everyone's like, mm. yeah, takes himself too serious, he's not, he hasn't got that sort of like fun, you know, the whimsy is gone a little bit. Yes, he wears a multicolored coat, but it never feels like it doesn't part feel like of that. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, it's like someone's gone, wear this, he's gone off. Oh, <laughs> just put it on. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I do want to read this this mm. quote. It's quite a long one, but so stick with me. It's actually from, it's from, it's from 1933, which is important. It's called The Importance of Living, and it was written by Lin Yutang. Uh, and the, the power, it's from the chapter three, The Scamp as an Ideal. This guy was a Chinese, he's, he's a Chinese philosopher. Uh, and he basically talks about the idea and he says about three things that are important to the human condition. But he says, finally, uh, that he does not react to surroundings mechanically and uniformly as animals do, but possesses the ability and the freedom to determine his own reactions and to change surroundings at his will. This last is, is the same as saying that human personality is the last thing to be reduced to a mechanical laws. I'm going to sort of paraphrase some of this. In short, my faith in human dignity consists in the belief that man is the greatest scamp on earth. Human dignity must be associated with the idea of a scamp and not with the obedient, dis disciplined and regimented soldier. 
the scamp is probably the most glorious type of human being, as the soldier is the lowest type, according to this conception. It is my hope that in the, that the net impression of the present one will be that I am doing my best to glorify the scamp or vagabond. In this present age of threats to democracy and individual liberty, probably only the scamp and the spirit of the scamp alone will save us from becoming lost as serially, serially numbered units in the masses of disciplined, obedient, obedient regimented and uniformed coolies. The scamp will be the last and most formidable enemy of dictatorships. He will be the champion of human dignity and individual freedom and will be the last to be con conquered. All modern civilization depends entirely upon him. So, yeah, so I think this is really important. As I said, this came from 1933. So there was obviously, you know, although he's a, uh, a Chinese philosopher, I think he was living in the West um, at the time and was obviously thinking more about sort of the rise of fascism and stuff that's appearing. But the scamp is Doctor Who. This idea of this sort of mischievous vagabond that travels from place to place, you know, saving sort of like this, and also a repeat individual. And by that, like each generation is this, is this new individual. Like he, he is the best representation of individualism of all characters. Like each, you know, there is no uniformity to him. Like he, you know, he can be anybody, and even more so now. Um, and I love this idea of being irrepressible, like being unstoppable in the sense of he will not give in to dictatorship. And as we see in a lot of these stories, you know, Vengeance and Varos, um, what was the third one? Um, well, Inferno, yes, with the alternate reality, but they're not giving in to sort of the, the, those sort of like quasi sort of fascist um, enemies, the Daleks, the Cybermen, all that. Like it, it just felt so sort of, it nailed it for me, this 1933 sort of like script, um, the importance of living was like, yes, that's Doctor Who. But it also becomes all these other sort of characters a little bit, you know, but more so he sort of like is the personification is the Doctor. But I don't know, and you've heard that now, I mean, it just sort of struck me, but I don't know, what are your thoughts? No, I think that's that? insightful. And I think, you know, I mean, it also helps explain the, the sort of bizarre behavior, the clothes certainly, you know, mm. which look more like a crazy homeless man in most in, in yeah. incarnations than, um, and I think, of course, of uh, Charlie Chaplin films, which uh, I'm a huge fan of. And, you know, of course, you know, uh, Chaplin, um, you know, opposed fascism and the, the scamp was counterposed to mm. uh, those systems. Um, and, you know, operated outside of the rules, but still was a good guy. And, and there is that. Um, that similarity to Doctor Who, I think you're dead on about this. I think that in American culture, the idea of the scamp has totally disappeared. Um, yeah. Like, obviously, we were, Chaplin was the most popular films in the world uh, produced here. And yet, fast forward, you know, a, a half of a century, and that concept, that figure of the scamp that was so important in uh, you know, the 20s and 30s is just utterly absent. Mm. Yeah, because I think the scamp, that is, it, it hits into that sense of whimsy, I think, you know, that we were talking about. And I think with America, and this comes back to that thing of, and, you know, excuse me and all our American listeners, but there is a sense with America of like, the Brits, we we know to laugh at ourselves. You know, we're a small, well, most of us do. Let's be clear, most of us do. But when you look at things like a lot of our comedy, you know, the absurdity of like Monty Python or 
Mr. Bean or one of those characters, we go, oh yeah, we know those characters and how ridiculous they are as a representation of British culture, but we laugh and we understand them. Like even when we look at like Basil Fawlty, thinking of sort of you know those things, we have those angry characters that we go, that's us laughing at ourselves. We know those people exist and we can laugh at it. With America, there's less of that laughing at oneself. You know, what I mean, true. it's sort of it's, it's it, and I think that's sort of where the whimsy and stuff sort of falls. Sure, like yeah. you can't not you can't do it. That sounds awful, but like there's there's the culture doesn't allow it so much. Like, and so the heroes of of you know this this comes back to that action man thing, which is probably a bit more. And when we when we do talk on Patreon, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, about the movie and the Americanization of some of the elements, the TV oh, movie, the yeah. TV movie from from yes, TV movie from the sort of uh, the nineties, you get that Americanization and they, that exists, and there's this more warrior sense you know mm-hmm. that that's the thing um and i think we we have got it and i think you know the, the sort of this is where the doctor the doctor stands opposed to that like you know even the new who this idea of the what do you call him the 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 war doctor is the doctor mm-hmm. they don't talk about because they don't want to have to represent that you know they're opposed to using guns and all this other stuff but with america i think there's a much more of a sort of a sense of to be a warrior, sort of like these characters, you know, even going back to the 80s, the A-Team, Knight Rider, um, these silly, silly shows, which I love, but are very much more centred on the that true heroic, you know, episodic, they turn up. Knight Rider's a good example. Like, he turns up with a sci-fi car, saves the day in some way, but it's all, you know, you never laugh at Michael Knight, you know, you or only only sort of kit can do that but it's never that same sort of sense of sort of silliness or whatever yeah i mean we take ourselves deadly seriously over here and um you know i mean we produce good comics but there is this no i mean the american mindset is a deadly serious mindset um that has very little room to to laugh at yourself and you know people people do and they talk about it but I agree with you. And I, and I think, you know, it's interesting that we used to be able to, um, you know, but, but something changed culturally. And, you know, I think that, you know, without digressing too much, that we, we put an intense amount of pressure on ourselves. Um, I mean, you know, this, this sounds like a sort of like humble brag, but nobody hates themselves intrinsically to the extent that Americans do. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, every American is just like, well, you know, I mean, I'm a failure because I'm not Elon Musk, you know, or or whatever. The, the the level of expectation, and some of that is the American dream and the myth mm-hmm. of um, meritocracy and all of that. Um, but it becomes very hard to to laugh at ourselves, and, and even in uh, older stuff, whether it was you know Star Trek or Indiana Jones, those comedic moments, even in our screenwriting, have largely disappeared. You know, and that mm. was long after you know a, an image of a scamp could you know represent somebody quintessentially American. Um, no, we just we see the world through the eyes of a warrior. Yeah. We're, we're the Klingons of yeah. the civilized world. Star Trek's a good example because there were two things I wanted to mention. Because Star Trek actually is a very good example and comparison piece. Starts in the 60s around the same time and has had a, a very lengthy and has gone through iterations. Mm-hmm. Let's take Kirk, for example. 
and compare him to Picard. Like Kirk was that was that like you say was that braggadocio sort of like all swagger and stuff like that. But you sort of got the sense that Shatner knew that it was all sort of like you know it was a bit silly and into the films like there's times it's taken seriously but you still get senses of there's a bit of humor like you you get the sort of at least within that triumvirate of sort of kirk spot and spock and mccoy they laugh at each other they poke fun at each other and you can sort of laugh at sort of like how ridiculous sort of like kirk is he gets caught up sort of like for whatever purpose like he's never a figure of fun and whimsy and same with the doctor is but it's it's recognised that it's like, like Shatner being sort of like uh, overblown and it's a bit t- camp. Okay, there's an element and of even, camp. And even in those episodes, the original series could have comedy episodes, yes. right? You know, like yes. uh, Trouble with Tribbles is a comedy episode. Yes. It's very rare that that gets done later. Well, again, well, look, you know, Jean-Luc Picard and the, the next generation becomes a lot more serious. Like there's a, mm-hmm. there's a couple of episodes where they do dip their toe into comedy or sort of like you know, situational comedy, but it's very, very rare. And the more you watch, the, the less it becomes a thing. Star Trek becomes much, much more serious. Until you get to the present day, when you've basically got sort of like intense action shows. Like, I haven't seen Strange New Worlds yet. I'm, I'm waiting to see that at the end of June when it comes over here. But, like, I like what they're doing with a lot of the new stuff, uh, Discovery and that. But the humor's sort of few, few and far between. Like, they're, sort of, they're leaning probably, Discovery's probably got more of it than other shows have previously. But I mean, there is there is an episode of uh, Strange New Worlds, a, a muck Spock that is as close as they've come to a, a comedy episode. And I, <laughs> and I will say that don't forget like lower decks, you know, oh, I'm, yes, I'm not... exactly. They're leaning into it more. Yeah. So like Star Trek is able to do lower deck and lower decks is brilliant. I really enjoy that, but it shows that there's ability to do that. However, one, the other point I wanted to make, cause I think Star Trek is a good comparison piece. Mm-hmm. A lot of those others sort of, like say go very serious, but when did it change? And this is something I, I am quite curious. It's how we as a country came out of World War Two. And I think Come that's not, so basically, I think what, what happened, what you see is before World War Two, you see countries, both you, you know, mine and yours, in a state of uh, in, you know, that interwar period is one of w- worry, but it, but but sort of celebration. You mean okay? post-war? No, 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 no. Into you mean between World War One and two? Yes, sort of okay. the twenties and the early early thirties. That sort of like mini decade, sort of like that fifteen years, like uh, nineteen eighteen to about thirty three, when all of a sudden, by that you know, sort of up to the crash, really. You're in this, you get this sort of like succession of things, but the twenties were like the roaring twenties. Like, you know, it was mm-hmm. all this sort of craziness, and even over here, like you know, you. If you ever watch sort of like P.G. Woodhouse's sort of like Jeeves and Worcester, like you, 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 there's this sense of like societal societal breakdown between the classes. Like we've all been in the trenches, so you know it's starting to fall apart a little bit. Um, but there's a joy in it. We sort of we survived the greatest war ever. This is never mm-hmm. going to happen again. This is mm-hmm. our chance to grow and, and stuff. So there was a you know there was, it was growing, and vaudeville and those sort of like Charlie Chaplin and and all these things sort of like you say murder mystery fiction, all these sort of these 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 creative arts grew, exploded in the in the twenties, and so people were enjoying it. And what happens? We then go into sort of, you know, we beat fascists when we go in this sort of like vaudeville in particular, uh, again, continues sort of into the 30s. The Grand in France, for example, the Grand Guignol is fantastic mm-hmm. in the 20s. Like it's a massive explosion of it again. Um, you know, they thought that was dead. They, they really didn't think that was going to come back in France after the First World War. And it did and did really well. Um, 
But we go into the Second World War, and I think what happens is a lot of Europe has been in wars for centuries. And we've gone, is another one, we've done it again, it's a cock up, and it all happens. And we come out and sort of carry on. You know, the comedy carries on. We have sort of like we continue across Europe in many cases with things like the Grand Guignol went off went carried on into the sixties. But over here we carry on with um what's his bleeding name? Um, turned out nice again. Yeah, you have all that sort of sort of comedy sort of elements we were able to laugh at because we were like, that's what we do. We laugh at the situation and we move on. And we carried on through this comedy. And you know, you see this reflective comedy. But America came out having you know, landed two nuclear weapons on, on a country and took their position, new position in the world, very seriously. You know, we are the shining light on the hill. We have now got to be a representative and we've got to take this very seriously. And so the sort of late 40s into the 50s, as we've sort of seen with, you know, when we did that 50s era, becomes very serious and sort of even, you know, very reflective in their science fiction and stuff. Like, you know, War of the Worlds is great. And, you know, sort of, you know, the world, uh, world at war, whatever the, the bloody thing was. Uh, the world. No, the one versus, the, the, Earth versus the Earth versus the flying saucers. Okay, yeah, yeah. Those sorts of things, they're all very serious. We're watching going, it's a bit camp, it's a bit silly, but like it's dead serious. <laughs> oh no, we take we take it very seriously, right? Yeah. I mean, even I think like think about Star Wars. Like Star Wars is the, the you know, we reviewed the first film. Silliest stuff yeah. imaginable, right? And yet it is done within an inch of its life. I mean, just deadly, deadly serious. Yeah. Uh, and I think that typifies our approach to this stuff and you you have examples otherwise like buffy or something you know yes but but those are more stand out as exceptions um i think you're right and i think that you know it, the other thing is after world war one you know first of all we we have an ocean between us but then mm. after world war one uh we went right into the first red scare yeah. And, you know, just this sort of very, you know, I don't want to say fascist, but this sort of like very um, conservative purifying campaign against anarchists, Italians, you know, uh, communists, just this this fear of mm. infiltration. And, you know, the same thing happened within not that many years after World War II. I mean, we we never, we never World War II never stopped, right? I mean, yeah. as soon as World War II was over, um, you know, and there was resistance to this, but as soon as World War II was over, you know, we, America said, yeah, but what about those Russians over there? Mm -hmm. And we are, were already at war, essentially, um, you know, dividing up the world and in you know influencing giving money to and weapons to anti-communist rebellions because there wasn't an appetite to get back into a world war um you know and it's weird for it's weird to think about but i mean your country was a lot closer a lot closer to hitler and to <laughs> the action right at the same time you know, to to us, that was an apocalyptic. I mean, that mm. was, maybe because we dropped the atomic bombs, but I mean, that was like good and evil. There is no middle ground. You fight yeah. and you die, and whatever has to be done, this is this must be done. 
And I mm. think that that attitude carried forward and, and was part of the problem of the Red Scare, but also influences um, influences the culture that, no, there are very real stakes. Yeah. And, and, and I think that I respond to that, especially in science fiction, where, you know, there was an episode, of, I think the best episode of uh, Strange New World so far uh, features the Gorn. And it's like as close to just like an early Borg episode that you get of just like, mm. oh, no, horrible decisions have to be made. People are going to die. This is life and death. Uh, this is not fucking fun, you know, mm. uh, and life calls on you. And, and we train ourselves, especially men in America. We train ourselves for these events, you know, whether I mean. I trained myself to, you know, my brother and I trained ourselves to, you know, be, we put our, each other in the trunk of the car, just thinking, you know, because we got to be trained for when that happens, because we've seen these movies and when we have to be ready. So stupid, right? But, and I do think that, yeah, so, I mean, I did want to come back to the sort of like comparison between Star Trek and Doctor Who, but I also want to. Mm -hmm. We'll let you chime in here. No, you, you, no, I'm loving it. I think I think you're right. I think Star Trek is a, is a good example. But talking about this sort of this cultural thing, I think a good example. You, you talk about the warrior as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the other characters I think I'd want to throw in here would be James Bond, mm -hmm. to typify this idea that like when you read the Fleming books, I mean books are different, but you read the Fleming books and Bond is very sort of like you know it, it, it's closer to the Daniel Craig, which is why I think Daniel Craig did so well, and you know, yeah, he was fine for zero, but you go back to those early Bonds, you know, even Sean Connery, but especially Roger Moore. Like, mm -hmm. we were like, let's take this deadly character who's actually got a license to kill, and we're going to make him fun! <laughs> <laughs> we're going to give him gadgets and make him suave and sexy. Like, I mean, you watch the first one, you know, like, was it like uh, Dr. No and mm -hmm. um, From Russia With Love? They are a lot more serious, but then you get, like, Goldeneye, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, no! Goldfinger. So Goldfinger, yeah. And yeah. You get like Goldfinger. That's and crazy because like... Gold, Goldfinger is a fun, campy romp. And it yeah. directly follows, like, from Russia with Love, which is, like, the most serious <laughs> yes. Daniel Craig hardcore, like, spy story. Yeah. and But that's when they're like, oh, this is, the me yeah, this is what this character is. And all of a sudden, Goldfinger typifies the template. You know, the, the, mm -hmm. the pre-credit sequence, that sort of, like, the camp, and that sort of thing. It, it elevates Roger Moore. Because we're like, we can't take these characters too serious. We don't like to take them serious because we think they're silly. Like we acknowledge how sort of like silly sort of Bond is. Um, and even like with Daniel Craig, like, you know, yes, we've had this hard bitten kind of thing and stuff. But if you ever look, if you look at any of the criticisms, you know, I suggest people do this. People do sort of, and it was, it was, it was true with um, Skyfall. Uh, not Skyfall, sorry, the first one, Casino Royale. And, thing. and one of the things that people were saying was like, oh, this is a hard-bitten detective. You know, this is the hard-bitten, real sort of Fleming Bond. And everyone was all for it because it was very different to the silliness that was the end of the Pierce Brosnan era. By Skyfall, like third film in, everyone's like, oh, we're getting back to James Bond. Like everyone was welcoming this thing of sort oh, yeah. of like, it's still Damien Crane, but we're getting, you know, we get a Home Alone sequence at the end of the film. We get like, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a villain on an island and we get sort of like, you know, all this, this, this sort of the extravagance back. We want that uh, decadence and the sort of silliness. We can't be without it. And I think that's a really important point with all these British characters is that's where we sort of go, 
we have to poke fun at them. We can't be too serious. We have to poke fun at them. And I think it's the same with Doctor Who. He's almost Doctor Who almost becomes impervious to to parody. We'll talk about that on the on the on the Patreon as well, because it almost parodies itself mm-hmm. with its whimsy. And I think that's what's interesting. Probably more so with New Who, but definitely with you know you get it in some of the areas. You know, again with um, classic Who. Yeah, I mean, I I, I want to make a comparison. Um between you know early star trek and early doctor who mm. um so you know i mean i i'm a huge fan of early doctor who but the doctor's not the main character no nope. uh, you know the sci-fi is i mean he's not an educator but the purpose of the show is to educate children yes and give them the candy which is you know the the sci-fi stuff mm. um and, and then we're going to give them you know the nutrition in the very next serial um and, you know, you're going to see the Aztecs. You're going to see, you know, these these different cultures um, and Marco Polo, et cetera. And, you know, maybe learn something, but at least you'll have a sense of this. Um, you know, St- Star Trek is an ensemble show. It's more of an ensemble show than than Doctor Who. I mean, Doctor Who had, you know, two companions plus the daughter. I mean, mm. it was a big cast, but... Uh, but the companions took center stage. The doctor was a vehicle. He was an extension of the target, yes. basically. Um, and on Star Trek, the reason why they had to do a second pilot was because they wanted more punchy punchy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the captain was always the main character. And, you know, in fact, even on Next Generation, the you know, the reason why, um, you know, like Tashi R uh, left uh, was because. She was always going to be relegated to, yeah. you know, uh, little scenes here and there. Um, it was always going to be the the main three. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a again, it's the, the cowboy thing, the love of uh, the person in charge being heroic and wonderful. Um, and then and then you have the like, you know, when we when Star Trek does a sort of historic show, it's like a piece of the action. Which, again, is kind of comic, right? They could do mm. that. But, you know, it's like there's a Nazi planet. Like, there's, it's still <laughs> serious in a way. Yeah. Um, but it, it never really... What we do is less... I think what we do is less historic. Mm. I think, you know, even when you compare British television to American television, it's only really been in recent years that, like, painful historical stuff was allowed in the mainstream in American, you know, I mean, this is a vast generalization, but in American television and American, I mean, you have roots, you have a few other things, but, um, but, you know, now you can have real historical dramas. Um, We go for the message, right? Even Mm -hmm. in Star Trek, like the stuff that's really, yeah, there's nothing to say about the Aztecs. There's nothing to say about, you know, but, there are the sort of social message episodes, right? And getting you to understand the, that seems to me very quintessentially American, right? Mm. Like it is important that you have the right ideas, um, you know, that you, we are all about the message. The details are not so important to us, right? Yeah. yeah. Like whether you're a Christian or a socialist or, or anything, uh, or you just, 
you know, I mean, the American dream, all of these American values. These are very abstract anti-racism. You know, all of these are very abstract concepts. We don't really care if anybody has any details to follow those up. Yeah. Uh, the British are, are, are more focused on the details and maybe feel a little less comfortable delivering a preachy, this you must believe kind of statement. Well, I think that's that's probably a really good point because I think, you know, we, we again, you know, going back to this sort of the scamp, this idea of individualism and stuff, but you look, look, even look at the companions. Look, let's look at Ace, for example, right? Because she is the sort of the companion that I sort of started with. That's mm. that was, I unfortunately came in at the end, but like Ace was that character, sort of like she's a rebel. Like she she carries around explosives with her in a backpack and she has an electrified baseball bat. Like, like she's supposed to be this, and like, so she delivered uh, this huge remembrance of the Daleks. Like when she sees that whole thing about, um, you know, no coloreds on, on the window and stuff, and that the racism that's intrinsic in that sort of 1960s society, that's us looking back and going, like, yeah, no, it wasn't great. Like, we weren't great 20 years ago, <laughs> like, you know, or even 25 years ago. Um, we need to consider, you know, but we're not going to have a whole preachy thing of going, like, well, we, you know, this is, you know, this is really wrong, and we're better than that now. It was more of a case of just that, from a historical context, of having someone at time going like, I, I, I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't get it. Why, why would you have this? Like, we've moved on. Not just that, you know, beating yourself up with it. Now, I think there's, you know, we do have certain others where we would do. There are certain parts of our history where we do sort of go. We haven't gone, you know, we don't go there so much. Like, you know, we do. Let's say you know, um, you know, uh, period pieces, corset rippers, if, if you will. Let's go back even further, you know, Edwardian or Georgian or whatever, where we focus on you know you're going to do sort of like a, a Bronte story or a you know one of those or the Jane Austen or whatever. Instead, you know, you're going to look at those sort of rich families, okay, and you're going to go, oh look, it's the it's the sort of the you know sensitivity or whatever it's going to be. Oh look them they all wear sort of pretty dresses and here's the sort of the gruff landowner that sort of you know they all fancy and you go oh that's right what does how does he treat the people on the land that he owns we're not touching that right we're not touching mm-hmm. that we're just going to follow this love story of these rich landowning people okay that's do you know what i mean that's what we sort mm-hmm. of do uh, even even more recently bridgerton the netflix show like you know you watch all these things and it's sort of it's a and I, it it does what it does. It's a soap opera for sort of like, you know, in a, in a period piece. I'm not going to put it down for that. There's an audience for it. Wonderful. But there is another flip side to that that goes, right, let's have a look at how this works. I mean, um, what's it? Um, Downton Abbey is a very good example of this, but there was actually, and we've done it before, in others, upstairs, downstairs, there's been cases of it, but they do look at it and go, here's the rich, here's the servants. And that sort of thing. We so we do it, but we we get very coy about it because we don't really because we've still got a queen, okay. Oh, we still got royalty. Oh, yeah, exactly. But we yeah. still have this noble. We still have this landowning class in this country, and we don't really always like to look at it and go, "It's a bit shit, isn't it?" That we still have this in place. Yeah, but in um, a way you do because you wink at it. You have the sort of yeah. like, but but I, the key thing is that it's the rage that's missing. Yes, like, exactly. We can't. We cannot do. If you notice, every um, I mean, every I'm hyperbole, just a little. But you know, every American version of uh, of England during the Victorian era, mm. you have to have characters say like, 
you know, well, the, you know, these prostitutes are women. These are people, damn it. You know, yeah. we, you know, you have to have, you know, somebody express that rage and want to do something about it. Because if you don't, it's just crushing to our spirit to, yeah. you know, to watch those details and think, you know, this must be destroyed, right? And that that's a reason, there's a reason why uh, we go to uh, like Django Unchained and we mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. you know, these uh, unrealistic uh, characters, these exceptions of people who, uh, you know, whatever anyone feels about, you know, the Weather Underground or, you know, uh, Martin Luther King being a more nonviolent example. But we like people who did something about this. Mm-hmm. The fact that 99% of the time it was just Downton Abbey, you know, and, yeah. and yeah. you know, is just horrifying. And, and, and we can't, I mean, obviously Americans, you know, oddly, oddly, oddly love this stuff. But um, I think, you know, it's hard for us to write that stuff and not have, these ahistorical moments because our response is take action, rage against this. You can't just laugh this off and go back to saying, yes, boss, you know. Well, you know, you're right. And I think this does come back to this sort of sense of being able to laugh at things. And our place, it's very much, and this is the English thing, and this is, this is you know, to counter, not to sort of to say, this is to counter the the American um let's say inability to laugh at oneself we have an inability to sort of affect our situation okay we have a, you know we have that thing of sort of like you know and it's not i wouldn't say it's a thing but that doffing of the cap you know yes sir no sir you know um i know my place you know my place is downstairs you know i'm sort of you know <laughs> i i'm I, you know we don't, don't look don't look the master in the eye you know sort of doff doff the cap and carry on that still exists but we still have this thing. So when we do watch these programs, Downton Abbey or whatever, or these his, these historical things, and we we get more annoyed at those atypical things. Mm. So when you do have a character that comes in and sort of says, "Well, these servants should have their own agency," and and you know, how dare you? So we should unionize. And you go, "Servants didn't bloody <laughs> unionize in 1834. Shut up!" Like we know that's not the case. We want to see the historical thing because actually we kind of like seeing the relationship between the servant and the master. Like it's part of who we are. We accept that. But we still sort of kind of like it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's sort of British. It's in that British thing of sort of like, you know, well, the queen is the queen. And you go, right, why is she the queen? Well, she's the queen. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> why is she the queen? What makes her the ruling head of state? Well, if you go back, like her family basically killed everybody else. <laughs> that threatened that and they just said we're in charge and then for centuries they stayed in charge like that's it there's mm-hmm. no and so but we're kind of like comfortable with that um and so you know that's i think that's the thing is we have to laugh at things because we don't really want to take them on that's why there's never been a revolution in this country oh there was right well I mean, you know there was a i and Look, I was just having a conversation about uh, the English Civil War the other day where I said, you know, the the best thing, you know, and this is, again, hyperbole, the best thing the Brits ever did was cut off the king's head. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, I don't know. He came back within three years at the end of the war. No, but that's what's staggering. It's like, (laughs) yeah, well, we kind of, I mean, 
the most confusing thing I can imagine is, yeah, well, this isn't going so great. How about getting those totally unqualified people back and giving them a lot of money and just let them kill everybody that they feel like? Let's just agree to that. Well, it's not even that this is, and this is the thing, and this is what I'm saying about this thing of, of, of you know, doffing the cap and in this place. Mm. We put Oliver Cromwell in place. He gives everyone things, but he, he's the one that's like, we're going to eradicate everything. We're going to ban Christmas. And that's when everyone goes, oh, wait, hang on, what? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't vote for that. And anyway, so Cromwell dies, but you know, short. I think it's within three years of his death, mm. so about four years of the war. Charles is back in charge. <laughs> We've got, to, and what he did, what does he do to prove his point? He has the bodies of Cromwell and his three, uh, like lieutenants, his three most important people, um, dug up, mm-hmm. and then re uh, tried. He he puts the mm-hmm. bodies on trial and has them hung, drawn, and quartered, and their heads put on a spike on the castle wall. And the rest of the country just sort of goes, yeah, well, back to normal then. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the shovel, we're back to the farm, off we go. And that's it. I know, and that's utterly mind-boggling, because the only sane response to that is, we've made a terrible mistake, he's a tyrant, instantly became a tyrant, you know, the only reason why he's not is because of these little controls that have been put in and the, and the little limits on British monarchy that historically has, has had a strong, a weak monarch, which yeah. is one reason why you, you're still dealing with it. But, you know, at that point, how do you not say, we've made a terrible mistake, time to kill him again? It wasn't well, even we, British. We never did. This is the problem. Like, even when... Like, you know, I'm trying to think, what was it? The poor laws, the corn laws of the 19, uh, the 1830s. There's an uprising. There's a potential uprising. And it leads to, I believe these associated, I might get this wrong, but there's like the thing called the Peterloo Massacre, where a bunch of people went to protest and the cavalry turned up and just butchered everyone. Hmm. And after that, everyone went, just went, it's too much hard work, that, isn't it? It's too risky. <laughs> we'll carry on. And so they yeah, just the Irish it. have a different response to those massacres. <laughs> but, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But and I don't when I say the British, I don't really mean the British. I mean the English. Let's yeah. be clear. We're just we're just sort of kind of lackadaisical when it comes to this. The Irish, oh, they are tooth and nail. Like they are going to go for it. Like you know, yeah, remember until, Bloody Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. even during I, I'm old enough that even in my early days, I remember seeing on the news sort of like you know. Um, during the troubles of the 80s and stuff, like nail bombs and people being mm-hmm. killed and all stuff. I remember all that. And understandable, like, there are people that took a position and fought for it. Do I, I don't agree with the means, but, like, fine. And again, like, the Scottish are the same. They sort of got to a position where they're a bit like, well, we're not doing so bad now, but mm-hmm. we're generally going to hate you. You know, it's, it's within our DNA to hate you. Um, yeah, beyond, beyond the border, like we're going to just dislike you, and so yeah. But we, as the English, have just got this sense of, you know, this is our position, this is what it is, and so we sort of live vicariously through these characters, like the Doctor, who comes and just sort of like challenges authority, and we do a bit like, oh, you cheeky, you cheeky scamp. You know what I mean? That idea, <laughs> of, like you've come along and you've disrupted things, you know. And, and move on, and we can live vicariously through that. But if you ever watch, and this happened in, well, it's more so in New Who, where they have the name dropping, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of lumpy, jumping between classic and New Who. Mm-hmm. You have Doctor Who had a, you know, has had sort of like connection relationship with uh, Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria, these are the monarchs, you know, and so it, within English history, 
that it sort of becomes, you know, he's almost like part of the, the Doctor has now been around for so long that he's almost part of the establishment. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think he always was. I mean, even when he was not a Time Lord uh, and couldn't regenerate, you know, even yeah. in the Hartnell stuff, he is, like, he is a obviously very powerful being who has this intensely powerful device, has mm. no concern whatsoever with helping anybody, right? <laughs> Wants, like, the best education for his yeah. daughter, and that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, there's no consciousness about society. It's less like, you know, uh, you know, the hoi polloi are going to do this, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah, he does seem, you know, there there is a weird sort of, like, upper class aspect to the doctor uh that's interesting it gets undercut yeah yes and that's that's a really you say about the upper class and stuff because hartnell i agree with and they try to undercut that straight away with troughton Mm -hmm. yes but you sort of get parts of it back Mm -hmm. like with with pertwee and it sort of seems to to, because again davidson in his cricket gear on us you know that's very sort of that's not a working class game, is it? That's not soccer. That's <laughs> sort of football, cricket on a Sunday. How British! That's like, yeah, that's Downton Abbey to a T. That is that. That's sort of that class structure is very. And also, you say about the establishment, he's a part of unit for a great part of things. That's right. And and um, even, but even after that, he, you know, even after, um, uh, even after the uh, uh, the is it Davison. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I, even after the Pertree stuff, he's, you know, he's always connected to Unit. And he has mm. this, he might have this negative attitude. But look, Quatermass is an upper class character. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he might not, it's not clear that he has any, well, so is James Bond, right? Yeah. I mean, Sherlock they, Holmes, they, same. That's right. Um, so, you know, even when the doctor is most sort of looking down on the military, and looking down on, you know, this sort of command structure and follow the orders, it's from a very sort of posh standpoint, right? Like, <laughs> I don't have to follow these orders because I have an estate. I have the TARDIS. I have, you know, I, I come from this line of nobility called the Time Lords, mm. right? They're lords, literally, right? They're, they're not yeah. a, a time commons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's very true. I mean, you're right. He, and, you know... This comes back again. There's, there's a. I'm listening. I'm, uh, I'm re- listening actually to a book at the moment, uh, and it's about the um, the golden age of murder. It's it's, it's the, about those mystery writers of the twenties and thirties. And I forget which one it was, but one of them early on said that you know basically sort of like the solving of murders is a rich man's game, because only a rich man has got or a rich person has got the um, the resources. To be able to spend the time like solving a crime and not working, right? So all your sort of again, like you know, Hercule Poirot or or um, I'm having the character, but like all those writers, those you know, they they have to put them in a position where yeah, they don't have to work, they can solve these crimes. So Agatha Christie, um, Miss Marple mm-hmm. is retired, or you know, whatever. But you get other ones that are lords, and you know, uh, all these others. And the same with like PG Woodhouse, you say about these characters, or Jeeves and Worcester. Like, in order for them to have sort of like hijinks and fun, well, they can't be working. They have to have you having. Um, 
And so the, you're right, there are these characters that they have to come from a, a position of, of, of wealth or nobility to be able to do the adventures. Because if you look at our working class heroes, they are they always come from a downtrodden position. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, talking about sort of if you look at British television and we talk we talked about this as an evolution, the 70s, the 60s, like Doctor Who is this position of as educator as sort of like, yeah, you got the action adventure, but there's no gunplay. There's very few car chases. It's all about trying to use an intellectual or sort of a, you know, there's some sort of um, sci-fi answer to solving the problem but it's not like you know kill the bastard boom boom it's, zap zap yeah it's it's more something to do with it but like you watch the 70s in particular you have like the sweeney uh the professionals the avengers the the mm-hmm. you know it was very sort of that was the 60s as well sort of emma peel and john steed kicking ass as secret agents um those those other things when we you know i'm making out of the thing but john peel and Emma Steed, John Peel's mm-hmm. is sort of like, you know, eventually played by Ralph Fiennes, you know, probably the most, uh, you know, becomes M, you know, sort of in Bond. Um, uh, you know, and... and very so, upper class. Very upper class. But then you've got... But when you get, like... When we get working class heroes, they're rough. They are right wing. They are sort of like the Sweeney, the, the professionals. Uh, even mm-hmm. if you want... And when you look at the nostalgia version of this, if you ever see the original Life on Mars... Uh, mm-hmm. From the early two thousands with John Sim and Philip Glenister. Philip Glenister plays, um, oh Christ, what's his name? The character is going to do me head in. But that character is very much that sort of seventies working class hero. You know, all about smashing skulls and kicking ass mm-hmm. and having a beer after because that's what it's all about. That's what the working man does. That's how you sort of like you know you sort of like you know you know you're part of the working class, protecting the lads down the road sort of thing. Um. And there is that difference between these heroes. And I think you're right. I think Doctor Who fits into that sort of more upper class hero. And we, mm-hmm. we have, I do think we struggle sometimes with this class differentiation. Um, and we try to have heroes that break the barrier. I think of, again, I'm sorry, I'm just, just reading things off as they come into my head. But like one of the characters that was a big part of this was Richard Sharp. The, the Sharp series, not just the sort of the Bernard Cornwell books, but when um, Sean Bean played him in the early 90s, he's a rank and file soldier. He was a sergeant, and then gets uh, you know through an act of bravery by uh, Wellesley, uh, Duke of Wellington, elevates him to become an officer, and then his history is him fighting his way up to to remain an officer, and eventually becomes a major. But it's always about he has to do it. So the second book, is it second book? I think it is. Is called Sharp's Eagle, and it's all about the fact that the only way he can remain an officer and be respected by the other officers is, is obtaining a French eagle. And the, he goes with this horrific thing. And the, the episode that does it is fantastic. But that whole show is about him not being recognised. And you get those up this mm. upper class going sort of like, well, you don't know what it is to be to do real soldiering. You have to come from a thoroughbred background to do true soldiering. <laughs> you know, that sort God. of ridiculousness. But we like that. We sort of we back the underdog. We always back the underdog. Mm-hmm. You know, in that situation. But we also seem to like us our, our upper class heroes as well so it's a complex sort of history yeah sorry well, I mean, that's a bit of a rant and i apologize no we, we have the same sort of split but you'll notice that our sort of first of all all our upper class heroes are nouveau riche right yes and even if they aren't self-made they're depicted at, generally depicted as self-made in reality they all inherited money right yeah. or if they were self-made it's because they figured out a way to you know, get government contracts and screw over other guys, right? 
I mean, that's the truth of it. But, um, you know, I'm thinking about how, how, you know, this evolution in superheroes, how in, you know, the end of the third, I mean, even all the pulps, right? They're generally rich guys. Oh, yes, uh, definitely. You know, it's not just Batman who has to be rich to have all these gizmos. It's also Hawkman's, uh, you know, Carter Hall is like a rich, you know, elitist. I mean, all of those guys is like the Justice Society. They're sitting around the table, right? Well, all like, let's make decisions for the commoners. Even before that, even before that, you're, you talk about the pulps. Doc mm-hmm. Savage yeah. is a self-funded uh, millionaire. Yeah. The Shadow, um, you know, his alter egos are also, he is a millionaire. Even the Spider, there's all these characters that are from the Pulps. Yeah, they were all, you know, rich guys or, um, you know, self-funded. Well, you, you could go back to the Scarlet Pimper now, right? Yes, you know. exactly. Yes, most definitely. I mean, that's where it all starts. The Scarlet Pimpernel, I read, I recently read the Scarlet Pimpernel. And that, you know, that, that, that alter ego of uh, Percy... Um, well, of course, no, no, but is foppish and silly mm-hmm. and feminine, and everyone, no one can, no one pre- understands him as the um, as the, the Scarlet Pimpernel because he's so feminine and so silly. But yeah, behind that is this sort of strategist who's using his his personal wealth to take on the weirdly the French Revolution to yeah. like you know again sort of like helping he but he he helps the rich escape. The aristocracy. Well, and, and this is why I think that, you know, like um, Batman, and you know, does not work today because, mm. you know, nobody. I mean, if you're rich and you want to be a vigilante, you hire people, you deploy drones. The last <laughs> thing you do is get your hands dirty, jumping from buildings and shit. Right. You know, this is not a thing. Um, and in, in the old days, you could imagine, right, you know, you, you were rich, you took fencing lessons and you could, you know, you know, study the arts of deduction or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we depict these superheroes as brawlers now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not. That's not that's much more a, a working class, uh, you know, character who's willing to, you know, damn it, I'm going to I'm going to get these guys. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I was thinking how even. You know, the doctors, you were talking about the sort of whimsy. Whimsy is an upper class trait. It is. You're you cannot right. afford to be whimsical when you're sleeping in a fucking closet <laughs> in Victorian London. It's a very good point. I mean, even Sherlock Holmes has whimsy. Like The stories are pretty serious, but there's a definite element of whimsy in the way that sort of, like, you know, this crazed sort of like, you know, detective sort of goes about the way he does things but the counter of that and you're very right and again i talk about you know the whimsy of sort of like miss marple or hercule poirot or any of those and they are whimsical you know they call them what do they call them sort of like um yeah the village hall murders because they all exist in this little this quaint middle england that never really existed but the counter to that the american version if in, if in all honesty is sam spade you know, it's the gumshoe, is the sort of the hard-boiled mm-hmm. detective, the working-class detective that has to get, you know, has the shit kicked out of him in every case, but he still comes true, but, mm-hmm. like, it's hard-fought. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's, the, that that's definitely come through, that sort of survived. And, you know, you want to hear, talk about working-class heroes in comics, think of, like, John Constantine. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he is basically, that's the, the, he is that equivalent. He has all the magic, but, like, yeah, he's not, he doesn't have any of the whimsy. You know, he can't afford... Um, compared to say Doctor Strange, <laughs> right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what set Constantine apart was uh, that he was, um, you know, that he was working class. Um, mm. I mean, to be a magician, you don't study magic if you don't have an estate, yeah. man. Yeah. What are you talking? No, nobody's in the in the East End going, you know. Uh, right. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, can I live in your flat? I'm going to study magic. <laughs> you know, uh, I met this demon. And yes. I have a great opportunity here. Yeah, and and that's that's so true. I mean, one of the you know we talk about detect we use this sort of thing detectives in that sort of way. I'm, I'm at the moment I'm reading quite a lot of um, supernatural detectives. I'm sort of starting early mm. on, and one of the ones that sort of is a great one is uh, there's a character called Karnaki, uh, written by William Hope Hodgson, and all of those stories are told from somebody else's perspective, or it's him reciting the story back, and. The ones I've read, they always start with, I had an invitation from Karnaki to attend <laughs> his study uh, for dinner and or tea and drinks. And basically his, his friends turn up and he recites this story about how sort of like he was he was invited to some lord's house or some estate that's haunted. And then the tale unfurls. You know, there's a family curse or there's you know a, a haunted object or whatever. And they're very good stories. But it's literally Lord Karnaki going like, you know. Like, yes, I'm rich enough to sit about doing fuck all and then I get invited to somebody's house and I investigate ghosts. Like, you're right. Like, you can't do that. In fact, I'm, I'm, there's another one called John Silence who becomes a doctor. And he was middle class, but he becomes a doctor so that he can fund his investigations. And it addresses this thing of going, well, I've got to become a doctor to get the money to do this. Mm. And that's like 1920s, 1930s. So there was an awareness of it. But most people just went, yeah, they're rich, so we're going to have them do this stuff. And people just accepted it. Well, and plus mansions. I mean, think about, yes. right, if you're going to have a meeting and have a demon, or if you're going to have a murder mystery, it's Clue, right? You need a nice big mansion, That's right. uh, you know, with secret passages. And, you know, well, all right, we're, we're here in the slums where uh, a body <laughs> has been discovered yeah. in this, ra- in this yeah. shack. Yeah, there were fourteen people living here, but no witnesses. Yeah, All right. That was, it was for some yeah. reason. So those crimes are never investigated. Yeah. So in, instead of like Professor Plum with the candlestick in the library, it was like you know, uh, it was uh, it was Randy the hooker uh, with a broken bit of glass uh, in in the alleyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't have the same ring to it. I don't think. Um, I'm thinking of a, a a pitch to reinvent Clue. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yeah. But again, like, you know, you, to keep this this idea of of class and, and how class, I would say, haunts mm-hmm. British culture. Mm-hmm. Like we we can't get away from it. Um, let, let think think Jack the Ripper, right? Because you just mm-hmm. we just mentioned you know this idea. We, no one knows who Jack the Ripper is. There's many many. Um, theories, but no, none of them are proven to be. Everyone sort of says, "I've proven," you know, yeah. whatever. Don't Go fuck care. yourself. Right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, You've yeah. all proved. Multiple people have proven it to be different people. But the celebrated, the most accepted, the one that everyone wants to be true, uh-huh. is obviously the one that, that Alan Moore expounded. Is the fact that you know one of the royals got a woman pregnant and the queen. Basically sent out one of her courts courtiers to kill this woman. He then got a bit of a taste for it and killed more people. 
He was like the 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 king's physician, the king, sort of king's yeah. physician, yeah. yeah. And he got a taste for it, and and you know it continues from there. That's the theory that people, you know, that still, mm-hmm. no matter whatever comes out, still comes up because everyone's like, well, actually, I heard it was the queen because we love, we, although we we you know, we want them to be up there at times, we want to pull them down and be like, you know, there's this conspiracy. Yeah, no, and, and I think that. That desire is very strange to me, you know, I mean, and we have some of the same, right? We want to build mm. Elon Musk up and we want to tear him down. And both are perhaps not as surprising, not as real as, as we think. Um, but, you know, I mean, the the Jack the Ripper thing is is fascinating because, you know, having having looked at that, I think it's crystal clear this was some poor dude who just like carving people up. Like there's yeah. no evidence that he really had any medical training at all. You know, the police botched the investigation from top to bottom. By far the simplest things. And there were murders in that area all the time. You know, yeah. nobody yeah. thought those other ones had to be perpetrated by, you know, uh, a, a royal come down from his estate, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, we it's all about conspiracy, and you know, they talk about like there's an artist and all these other things. But yeah, it's it's there, and we do that, don't we? And and we love to have them torn down, for, 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 but we can't seem to get rid of them. Prince Andrew, so, most recently, you know, Pedo Andrew, we love to get rid of him, but we're not going to do anything about it. Well, it, it's True. interesting talking about class. Um, you know, we have to mention the fact that this is something that knew who. And, you know, the genius of uh, Russell T. Davies addressed right out the gate. Yes. Um, and, you know, Eccleston, it's one reason why Eccleston actually doesn't work for me as much as, you know, uh, some other doctors is that he feels much more rough and tumble working class. Mm. Um, and but Rose was quintessentially a working yes. class companion. Like Ace is sort of like the right. We're going to acknowledge the punks. This is, you know, a, a, a punk, but you don't see that hard-edged kind no. of thing that you do with Rose. And I and I think that there is an implied criticism there of this entire classic Who era that we're talking about really being upper class and elitist in a way that, you know, isn't maybe immediately apparent. In classic Who, you mean? Yeah, in classic Who. Yeah, no, you're probably right. I mean, again, you look at the com- you're using the companions, like you know, yeah, they're all not not, not just well. They're, they're well to do, but none of the working class. They're all in mm-hmm. you know well positions of like you know going back to Sarah Jane, uh, what's it as a, as a journalist. They're all in positions of you know relative respected positions, teachers or whatever. But we go back to that. I mean, again, like you know, even with New Who, they 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 tried to keep that mm. balance much better. But you start with Rose, and then you know, then you end up with a Doctor. Um, with um, God, I can't remember all the names now. Um, it's not until you know, but you get like Donna, as again like mm-hmm. another sort of like you know, she's not, she's not Rose because she's a lot you know, be careful. She's older and she's supposed to be more you know, much more sort of like mouthy. But she's that mouthy sort of like, um you know southerner sort of working class character um they've definitely worked harder at making the 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 companions much more even with with, with um the last doctor the 13th doctor yeah. uh, jody whitaker they've tried to keep the companions working class definitely yeah. um to counter but then in that case all right so that then does that then become 
more of a problem where you've basically got someone from the you know you've then got again the, the time lord mm-hmm. um d you know sort of going well i can throw these commoners a few scraps of adventure whilst i sort of go off on my you know d- well i don't think that's worse? problematic i think that's true <laughs> i mean you know like i i mean in in classic who there aren't these kinds of breaks between episodes in the same mm-hmm. way right the companions are just like I'm along for the ride. Uh, I mean, I'm part of your royal stable, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. I've joined your household. Um, you know, now, I, you know, I'm sort of your servant. Um, mm. and, and, you know, that's maybe one reason why I like the Hartnell stuff is that he's so aloof, he's so alien that um, he's not the central driving force in the same way. Uh, oh, he becomes a little more as time goes on, but... Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you say, in New Who, it's like, oh yeah, six months or a year pass between these episodes. Yeah. You know, you are utterly at the whim of the Time Lord for when the Time Lord decides to come in and say, in the equivalent of like, well, I'm Sherlock Holmes. All you Watsons are welcome to come along with me on the, yes. on the next adventure. I feel like solving a mystery today. Yes. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, you know, Never more so, actually, the more I think about this. You're right, but never more so, probably, than um, Matt Smith. Because mm. mm. mm-hmm. David Tennant had a tenure with his companions, but it was, he had the um, Rose, the, the whole Rose thing, which sort of probably covers the most of the thing, was more of an emotional arc. That felt like a connection. That felt like a thing. He does then have, um, oh, God, oh, my God. I can't believe I forgot the bleak. He had a couple of others that felt short-lived. Um, and so they were fine. But, you know, Donna sort of forces herself Martha, upon the... Martha, one of my favorite. Sorry, I love Martha. Martha. That's the one. It was almost... I was thinking it would begin with an M. She sort of parallels him. She's sort of equal to him in intelligence and stuff. And 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 Donna sort of like for, almost forces herself upon the Doctor. So there's there's less of that sort of like, you know, handing out scraps. But you know they try to reconnect. They try to rebuild that connection with um, Matt Smith and uh, Karen Gillan's character. But it never, to me, never felt the same. He always felt like because he was supposed to be that sort of raggedy man. He always feels like that the mad rich uncle mm-hmm. that turns up and is like, "I'm off to find the lost world. Anybody in?" Yeah. And, like, and then they get whisked off on this adventure again. And so it always felt like. No, you say they were the whim of whenever he was going to turn up, um, and that and that does feel a bit more like the you know that sort of like the the whimsy of the working class to be able to do these crazy things. But it, but I think at least knew who sort of interrogates that. I mean, at least yes. it mentions that, right? Mm. And I think I think the Davy stuff interrogates it more, uh, you know, on a deeper level. But those dynamics are certainly there, um, you know, certainly there in, in later seasons. Um, that they're at least willing to say, like, we're, right, we're just at your whim. But then ultimately they say, all right, let's go. And then that's not yeah. going to be mentioned again. Um, yeah, whereas, you know, I was thinking, you know, in terms of that sense of whimsy, I mean, you have to really be a lord to get away with wearing uh, a suit with question marks and celery. 
right? Yes, like, exactly. You, if you, you know, yeah, it, old school Liverpool. You know what's going to happen to you <laughs> when you walk on the street wearing that? If John Constantine turned up wearing a, a cricket outfit with celery, I don't think he would be the same success. But this comes back to eaten on the streets. Yeah. Well, th- this comes back to this point, doesn't it? And, and I think. Um, I've heard it said by many people, but I remember, I remember Billy Connolly saying this thing when he met a bunch of upper class people that talked about what they did for a profession, and they were like toboggan. Mm. So what do you mean uh, toboggan? And they were tobogganists. That's what they did. And he was like, you know, when you when you're rich and you do these things, you're eccentric. Mm-hmm. When you're poor and you do these things, you're crazy. Exactly. And yeah, that's you're going to be institutionalized in a day. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like there's almost like there's a demarcation, isn't there, where wearing eccentric clothing moves from being eccentric to being, you know, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, again, I think that that costuming, the crazier it gets, the more positioning it, you know. Like, but I mean, if you look at Trouter, I mean, the guy is basically wearing a suit. Like it's not too far removed he's scruffy in the right. suit it's not until yeah. you get to, to pertwee where he's wearing bloody roughs and things that you're like mm. yeah we're moving into a territory where like you know someone needs to have a side word with him say <laughs> so, like but also like, he's on military bases all the time yes. i mean it seems so incongruous <laughs> in but, at the, but at the same time you think oh that's the lord that comes help us that's the scarlet pimpernel who, who comes exactly. to solve our cases for us you're very right. Like I, you know, I consider going back to this idea of the scamp. Like mm-hmm. this, this idea of the scamp, this idea of the individualism, and this is that thing. Going back to that philosophy, this idea of the sort of the individual that um, is able to defend against uh, fascism or threats to democracy, individualism. You can only do that if you can afford to do that. And I think this is where some, you know, when people sort of look at places like. I'm going to use Nazi Germany as a prime example or other places where they go, well, how could people let this happen? How could the whole of countries let this happen? You go, well, don't forget, a vast part of that country was starving in the early 30s because there's, you know, during the war years because their currency collapsed and there was massive unemployment and stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, the Nazi party or the sort of the socialist uh, parties it was, was providing jobs and people were just like i need to feed my family like i can't i can't upset the status quo because i've got to feed my family like that was it um and it wasn't about sort of supporting ideology it was just a case of this is what i do my day day job i know there's other factors but that's a big part of it i mean you know i i think i think that's largely a myth personally i mean Mm. i you know my my reading is um you know, one of the things that, you know, actually my reading has been very much changed. First of all, uh, the Nazis never had a majority of the country. They didn't no. come in. They they were elected popularly, but just like Trump and others, you know, did not really have a majority of the population. They were able to form, you know, a, a mm-hmm. government and then, you know, change the laws. Um, and the other thing, I mean, everyone knew they were bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, the majority of the country. But... Uh, you know, this this whole idea that it's you're you know, you're right that, you know, the hierarchy of needs. Right. I mean, when you're starving mm. and, you know, things seem desperate, you say, on the other hand, we've seen a rise of fascism in, in our countries and around the world that has True. not been connected to a need. And one of the main factors is the the whole sort of stabbed in the back myth 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, and when you perpetuate lies, the interesting thing is what re- helped the Nazis rise to power were, you know, fake news, believing that, you know, a coalition of Jews had, you know, yeah. forced Germany to give up the war that was so completely lost and stupid. Uh, but this fake version of history. And if you mm. believe that, then, you know, you know, well, you, you read the right wing newspapers and mm. they tell me these facts. So um, that's anyway. a very, very good point. Yeah. But I mean, you know, yeah, getting back to this class point. I mean, so, you know, and I do I, I, I do want to sort of like walk through the the, the Doctor Who episodes. Um, mm. But um, yeah, so, I mean, do we understand sort of all of classic Who is kind of like contaminated in some way by, you know, um, sort of, you know, the, these class and inability to to really address real issues or or the the working class and how do think, how do you understand this well i i think i think it's too far i think they do address certain issues or they try to in some cases they, they you know later on like we, the, that last sort of three probably start to look at and there's a, there's a couple that sort of try to address like fascism and, and the idea of sort of like you know um those ideas which is very counter to doctor who like even like you know the gen- genesis of the daleks like that whole idea of the pointless war you know th- those sort of ideas things issues come up class isn't really sort of like or even when class is brought up they just try not to mention it to the, the companions <laughs> you know when class is addressed in the sort of this idea of being controlled again like say vengeance on varos we just don't talk to, we just don't talk to the companions about that like it, it's not there it's not there to be thing however as we said, this whole thing about the working class, I do then think that Doctor Who does fit into a mould. It fits into an archetype that I think is very British. Again, I think of, like, you talked about Scarlet Pimpernel, but then I think of, like, uh, Alan Quatermain. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, these these the, um, uh, the guy, the original character that went to the Lost World, um, Professor... Um, it's going to blow my mind. But, the, yeah, the guy who wrote that, like, he went on a number of adventures, you know, uh, he was in 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea, and the, the, this sort of like these rich adventurers that take people along, you know, those sorts of things, those characters existed. And I think you're right, I think the Doctor sort of exists in that um, archetype. Sherlock Holmes is exactly the same, sort of like, you know, come on, Watson, solve the crime. <laughs> um, um, uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think he fits into that archetype. I think he is still the scamp. I think he is this sort of like, they've got the, there's the whimsy, the ability to laugh at himself, make himself ridiculous, and use that ridiculousness to form almost like a position of authority. Um, but where does he fit in British culture? Like, we still look up to him. Like, you know, we, we, maybe we, maybe we do misinterpret him. You know, we think him, maybe I think people do sometimes see him as a working class hero because he's, he, he fights back against the Time Lord establishment. But, He's still one of them. Yeah, <laughs> he has brought him down. He under, he's just he's a rebel, but he's you know, he's that sort of rebel lord. Yeah, no, I I think that's right, right? I mean, I think that mm. he, you know, talking about the the sort of scamp. I mean, I'm hitting pressing hard on these sort of upper class, this upper class interpretation. But you know, thinking about him as a scamp, he is always depicted as an outsider. Right. Yeah. Even when he's not the last of the Time Lords. Right. He always has 
I mean, he has a bit of that Captain Kirk, like, well, screw the prime directive. You know, I'm going to yes. do what yeah. I think is right. I mean, yeah. he has that same sort of outsider status, but that doesn't mean that he does. He's not privileged. Right. Mm -hmm. um, hearing you talk, I kept imagining like a, a, a fanfic of Ace just, uh, you know, the doctor going to uh, the TARDIS and the door's not opening. And Ace says, sorry, doctor, I've seized the means of production. Uh, and just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> taking away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. How many, you know, it'd be interesting to look at, you know, because they've got to go on an adventure and all this other stuff, but, like, how many, like, dystopias do they go, do they go to that are, you know, fascistic in nature, but they never go to one that's sort of, like, you know, left-leaning. They never go to sort of, like, a, you know, a utopia that's sort of like, oh, we figure this out, and there's something, you know, it's always, I know that's the point of the adventure, but yeah, it's always, um, um, he's the underdog because he's the outsider. That's the mm -hmm. point, but he is still, I'm trying to think of the other characters, yeah, but he is, he's still that rich lord who is able to do these things, you know. He's he's rejected by his own class and so sort of accepted by the rest, but still different, still separate, still you know aloof, as you say. This is fascinating because it, it sounds like he, you know, I, th I think what we're zeroing in on is that he is that there is a class element, but he mm. he is that upper class character who does good right through noblesse oblige. Right, mm. does good for the general population. So he's the time lord. He's the lord who says, "Yes, I'm going to go out and have these adventures, and I'm going to bring these companions, in, but I'm going to risk myself to fix these societies." Right, and then you get into the white savior thing, you know, well, and all of that. But he certainly has a social conscience, right? He... Yeah, I mean, it's the same as sort of like Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin. Exactly. The, origi the original Robin Hood, as far as I'm aware, was wasn't an, a lord. Wasn't the sort of um, the lord of the manor, the return to find his thing. That was a later edition. We made him a lord that then turns <laughs> on the aristocracy. We made we made the character a lord that then turns <laughs> on the aristocracy and on the royalty to support to, to you know, rob the rich to to give to the poor. I love the theory you're bringing of the British of like. Nobody who accomplishes anything, whether it's Jack the Ripper or Robin Hood, we cannot possibly survive thinking of them as a commoner. We can't. Every <laughs> seriously, use. I'm trying to think. I'm literally. Whenever we think of, we have a power structure in this country. Why do you think we have an Etonian class that rules our country at the moment? Like all of our, all of the cabinet at the moment, pretty much all of the male fingers in the cabinet attended Eton, right? Even our even our labour leader, you know, is from wealth and stuff. Like you know, he's not any different. And I'm I'm just looking at my books. I'm just looking back at things. I'm going, yeah, where our working class heroes exist in a different kind of um, iconography. You put in universe. Yeah, I'm I'm looking up at like you know I'm I'm actually going to say I'm going to use James Herbert as a good example. So. James Herbert, you know, those pulp writers of the sort of the late 70s and 80s. But James Herbert is a, is a really good example of, um, if you read like Rats, the Rats trilogy, 
is a really good example. That's about like, the working class, because that is really about the working class living in those places where these rats take over. And you get these sort of like, you know, they're not rough characters, but they're, they're working class heroes, working class characters that take on these horrors and stuff. There's another, um, um, he's another one of his other characters, Ash. Um, uh, it's like a supernatural detective kind of thing. He's a working class guy who sort of, you know, works for the Psychical Research Society. And so you, he, he brought in these sort of, these, um, these working class characters. And so they always butt up against figures of authority they never mm -hmm. escalate they never elevate they always butt up against them right and they're always in a position of semi or power right so they're always these working class heroes are always like a, 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 you know a, a bobby on the beat a working class teacher a factory worker someone like that even thinking of sharp like you know the, the he's a napoleonic soldier who gets elevated into the thing the whole thing is about fighting tooth and nail to get elevated up not because he's not from wealth, or he ends up wealthy at the end. We don't, but we, if if it's a working class hero, they have to remain a working class hero, mm. and life has to be tough, because that's what we accept. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Though? That's I, I the do. point. And yeah. if we have if we have characters that have to have this whimsy, this 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 ability to go and do these things, or as you said, to sort of deem to give us the opportunity to do things ourselves, they have to come from an, a level of wealth or a level of aristocracy. Like those characters are there, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm even looking at. Think about so what some of our you know, our best writers. Um, again, those characters. Like M. R. James is one of my favourite ghost story writers. He was a, he was a, you know the dean at, at uh, Cambridge, I believe. Once he was there, that whole all of his stories are about people that were wealthy people that went to university at the time. Like you know, mm -hmm. one of his stories, um, uh, Whistler, uh, oh Whistler, my lad, and I'll come to you, is about a professor who takes a walking holiday for two weeks. Mm -hmm. He's just I'm off on my walking holiday, like you know, and that's it. Like that's that's the sort of characters that the and we go okay, that's a classic character. Bronte, Jane Austen, someone we hold in high regard as one of the great sort of female feminist writers, feminist writers of the Victorian, you know, that sort of 19th century. Great. They're all rich. Yeah, that's right. You know, oh, this family will be in ruin if you don't marry Sir So-and-so. You know, you'll be, the families must be, oh, my God. It's all about wealth and power and aristocracy. You know, yeah, I Charles, mean, we're not much Charles, better, right? I mean, no, we, we do the same thing. Yeah, but this is what I'm saying. Like, you know, this is, this, I think it's because then you get Charles Dickens, but it all comes, you say that the, the Americans do, but I think it's fed by mm -hmm. this this Victorian era that Charles Dickens looks at. Whenever Charles Dickens writes about the poor, you know, um, Oliver Twist or, oh, I don't know my, my Dickens as well as I should, but like, you know, it's always about hard living, <laughs> you know. Wuthering Heights, you can be you if you if you're rich enough, you can be crazy obsessed with people and get away with it. Like, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Dickens does a little better job, I think. Yes, um, you know, I mean, Great Expectations, you That's have the, the, the guy on the moor, you know. Yes. I mean, uh, and I mean, and that shot through with class. I mean, yeah. it's one reason why I like it so much. Um, you know, yeah. as somebody who. I mean, part of the problem in America is we all think we're going to be upper class someday. Uh, so, you know, got to keep those taxes low. Um, mm -hmm. But we have the same problem. Um, 
I mean, and, and some of it is narrative. We're used to whether it's, you know, like Succession or, you know, the movie The Game or, you know, all mm-hmm. these, you know, you never see. I mean, you mentioned Friends, right? They're supposed to be working class, you know, <laughs> they, they live in an amazing apartment yeah. and all they do is drink coffee all day. Um, you know, we have we have those problems of we want to write these universal stories. But I think that especially as the the income disparity these gulfs just widen and deepen and become a sort of trench in our culture. Um, it's become more and more um, normal for, mm. um, and, and this is shot through with race and other things too, but for a middle-class white person to just say, no, I don't identify with that rich dude at all. Uh, yeah. I want I, I want his head on a pike. Can we eat yeah. it, please? Yeah. Um, that's become pretty common over here. Um, whereas before it was just, no, yeah, you know, it, not that's our betters, but just sort of, okay, that's, I'm used to stories about that. Um, the thing is, yeah, I think what I would see is, I think is, but there is a different approach. I think going back to our approach of laughing at ourselves and this ability mm-hmm. to take is we balance it. I think that's the difference. So for every Richard Sharp, you get a Flashman. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever read the Flashman books, but he's basically sort of like the equivalent of a gentleman, sort of Napoleonic soldier who's a bit of a, you know, he's a, I was going to use the word scallywag because that's exactly what yeah. he is. But he's a rogue and a coward. You know, we expect that. So he becomes that character. Mm. You know, as I, I've mentioned the Jeeves and Worcester. Like, you know, Jeeves, is the, Jeeves, the butler, is the brains. Worcester's a fool. Yeah. You know, there's that sort of the daftness of, of, of it. You know, we ex- there's that sort of um, thing. We we accept that there's that class thing, but we're able to laugh at it as well and go, well, the bloody aristocracy. They're all fools, aren't they? They're all inbred fools. Um, but so, let's tip the hat to them tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we're willing to go, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, we know they're silly, but we aren't quite ready to go in a street and go, oi, tosser like, you know, we're not quite mm-hmm. ready to be Constantine yet you know we're not ready to be that character yet maybe one day but there is we we are happy to spitting image we have literally have a show called spitting image where we have puppets of um all these celebrities and the royals and everyone that takes the mickey oh, no, out of them no. weekly basis. have you not seen spitting yeah. image no 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 all right goes back to the 80s it was created but it's recently researched it's a it's a it's a very great satirical show that uses puppetry puppets caricature puppets of celebrities and, and the royals and everything and pokes fun at them in you know quite broad strokes so we're, we're happy to do that and poke fun at these characters and, and fun and you know and stuff however let's be clear we have had a conservative government for over 10 years for a per for a reason <laughs> yeah right let, you know let, let's not forget these things um and talk let's go back to bring it back to doctor who i mean you know jodie whittaker comes in first female doctor and there's uproar, you know, um, and the, the stories try to tell, go back to, almost try to go back to this educational formatting that, that the Hartnell era had. You know, they went to, they go to, they meet Rosa Parks, they go to India to talk about the Rise of the Raj. Two best episodes of that first season were, yeah, were those. Yeah, exactly. They're really good. They got ripped to pieces because people are, oh, social justice warrior nonsense. And you're just like, yeah. no, it's, you, you really need to go watch some early, like <laughs> some early Doctor Who um and so i just think yeah i just think at the moment we are, we are going through this period where like we want to laugh at our betters but we're not not 
openly. Do you know what I mean? Like we we have literally just had a four day celebration of the Queen for her for her jubilee, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the in this like one of the things, and this is a, a great example of that. The current version of Paddington Bear, the one that's been in the two films, right? Mm. They did mm-hmm. a sketch. They did a sketch where Paddington was invited to the palace and shared a marmalade, marmalade sandwich with the Queen. And you know, this is a let's be clear, this is a bear that snuck into this country mm-hmm. <laughs> from Peru. The guy, the dude's a refugee, right? Ladies and gentlemen, he's a refugee, right? But he's also a representation of this country. Like he's one of our favorite characters. Right. So, and so it, we have this weird dichotomy of sort of like they're the things we're accepting, not those. Right. We'll push that away, but we'll accept that. And you sort of look at them and go, they're almost the same. And you go, yeah, yeah, but this one's slightly different. Mm. We, we we are very complex in this sort of like what we accept what we like and what we don't like well i mean you know we're the same way and, and i think humans have cognitive oh, dissonance right so exactly that's the you word can accept paddington bear and still be like right i'm glad we we're exporting our uh our yes. uh asylum seekers <laughs> um yeah. you know people have these weird disruptions or these real weird yeah. dissociations just a final point, just as a character, I'm, then we'll move on to the shows because we'll, we'll run through those very quickly. Another another character that sort of like fits this this model, I think, of, of very British, the way we approach things, is Blackadder. I love Blackadder. I was just watching Blackadder again the other day. Blackadder is fantastic, but Blackadder didn't work in the first series. That's right. They made Blackadder. They, they made Blackadder the aristocrat and the mm-hmm. and the the sort of the the silly character. They made him the butt of the jokes. And mm-hmm. Baldrick and Percy were the sort of the the more clever ones. And all of a sudden, they flipped it around for the second series, where Blackadder was the cunning one. He's the smartest one in the room, and uh, the the prince, no Queen Elizabeth, isn't it? It's, the, it's yeah. Queen Elizabeth the second series. And so you have got Baldrick, who's is is you know clearly. Not the uneducated, unwashed, the commoner. Yeah. The commoner. And then you have his da- his daft friend Percy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where you all of a sudden, you, again, we have this like this cognitive dissonance where we love Blackadder because he's angry. Like he's just he's just so frustrated and, and like annoyed with everyone around him all the time, and the the games that have to be played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's very British. Like we, we you know we sort of see that sort of like you know we we then put up a queen wonderfully played by uh, our the actress but i love the queen elizabeth character like she's so childish and sort of like you know whose head shall i cut off today um and all that kind of stuff and it plays that and again it's this thing of like black adders then he's in the butler he's you know a point of privilege to the prince regent and then he's a captain in the trenches mm-hmm. black adder is that is again that sort of balance he's he sort mm. of tiptoes that balance between class and you know our frustrations with it i think yeah, I mean, so, but you know, my response as an American is to be is to very very conscious of that, mm. uh, and I agree with you entirely about that first series. But but also, you know, to think, and and I suspect that's probably a lot closer to Queen Elizabeth than frankly okay. those Elizabeth movies, you know. Uh, but uh, but to also realize the injustice. That in all of those cases, this is a stupid and unjust system, right? Yeah. Now, those don't those don't make you want to take to the streets and, you know, 
uh, tear down the monarchy or, mm. you know, or, you know, it's not a call to action kind of injustice. But you laugh at it knowing this is unfair from top to bottom and this is stupid. And even though Black Adder is not the kind of person he has sort of Trumpian, you know, uh, characteristics, you would not want him in charge. But he's certainly in a meritocracy. He is far more intelligent than <laughs> all yeah. of the others. Um, and so there, I mean, I think that, you know, yeah, you can laugh at it, but I think as an American, there is a, perhaps a, a more palpable sense of injustice. Mm. I don't so know if that's true. No, yeah, I know, I understand what you're saying. Um, cause I don't, I often don't think of like the injustice with Blackadder cause he often wins. Hmm. Yeah, he. This is the thing. He he often uses his position of privilege to win. So there's never an injustice. Like he is able to manipulate the situation. And you say about class. I mean, we've already covered Red Dwarf, and I think you know mm-hmm. uh, the, the the difference between Lister and Rimmer being sort of like Lister is the honest working class. You can you can respect that honest working class. He accepts his position. He's brighter than he he pretends to be. But Rimmer's that the ladder climber. You know, he's the sort of up the ziggurat lickety split and you can't respect that and again because you want you know so i think that's the climb and that's what we don't like that's that barrier isn't it we don't like people that try to climb that barrier we don't like it because we want to tear them down and so i think yeah that we do have a we have a complicated relationship with class i think in, in some of these cases and i think sometimes it's hard for us to accept like with doctor who that that character might actually be a representative of a different class the law that he's the law. normally identified with because yeah. it is working class people in Britain who who like him so much, you yes. know, who grew up hiding behind the couch. Yes, 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 yes. Anyway, I think we've gone around that a lot. Mm. And I've, I've looked yeah. at my fantastic this conversation. I think it's going to change the way I watch Doctor Who for a while. Um, but let's quickly run through the, the stories and just give a bit of a let's see what we think of them. Mm-hmm. So if we do jump back to, as we said, the first one, the Aztecs, the Hartnell story. Um, did you have you got a score for it? I, I, I do. Um, go on, let's go. And I, I think it's interesting, sort of like what we remember and what sticks mm. out for us. I don't, I mean, I gave the Aztecs 4.5 out, um, of, out 10. of 10. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what sticks out for me is just the setting of the Aztecs and you know, seeing the temple and seeing the costuming and the door that closes and all of that stuff. The plot, you know, the garden and all that stuff. The the plot seems utterly inconsequential to me. What about that's, you? A, very, that's a very good point? I probably couldn't tell you much about the plot. Um, <laughs> I remember there was like a Richard the Third kind of character um, who was actually quite good fun. Um, I remember the sets being quite impressive for for they used the backdrops and stuff, but they they they, they tried to have an you know, an idea of scope and stuff. So. I'd, I'd probably, I think I'd get, well, I haven't done it yet, but I'd, I'd give it a five actually, because I think there was there was some good stuff in there. It's stilted, and the fighting is dreadful. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's, it's yeah. It, it you know, and it has a tendency to hit on points and then sort of leave them. There was a whole point about his granddaughter sort of like becoming a woman and being married off, and that sort of gets dropped. She sort of resolves up by going, like, "I'm not doing that," and it's dropped. So there's a few. Bits of inconsistencies, but um, it was it was a good entry point. It was interesting to watch. It's also super racist. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of a lot of uh, blackface going on. I think was a bit of a problem. Uh, okay, then we did Daleks Invasion Earth twenty one fifty. 
I uh, uh, this <laughs> I struggle with this because um, now this this is, this is lower for me. This is a three point five. I really struggled with this. Like, there's some good bits in it. Whoa. Yeah. No, and I'll tell you what it is. It's because I, 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 I like Peter Cushing so much in so many other things that I just find him really awkward in this. I think the whole thing with the, the, the police officers gets a bit weird and the, the future setting's fine, but then when it's all about the magnetism and the Daleks sort of rotate, like falling around, I don't know, the end of the finale of it is is just, the more I thought about it, the more it became slightly laughable. So, and, you know, it doesn't work, this, I can see this work, as we said, this would have worked better as a serial because there's a lot of travel and stuff going on. It all just felt very condensed and very rushed. Um, despite a couple of good scenes, so yeah, three point five. I really, I wouldn't go back to it. Yeah, well, I'm not eager to go back to it. I I gave it a five, which is sort of meh, you know. Um, I think it's a perfectly adequate sort of. Um, it, it feels more fifties than sixties in a lot of ways, but a perfectly yes. adequate, um, you know, sort of uh, daft sci-fi film of the era. Um, <laughs> I do think the, the, the first one is uh, is better Best. than mm-hmm. the second. Um, but, yeah, it, it doesn't... It certainly has a lot of the, the hiking and, you know, not noticing the, the writing on the wall, literally. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that, and that whole... Yeah, the whole gizmo at the, at the end and all of that. But, on the other hand, you know, like the, the rubble and the dogs in the streets and, you know... I mean, it's got cool stuff and, you know, mm. it's... It's not going to be anyone's favorite film ever, probably, but it's but it, it seems perfectly adequate to me. Um, okay, the the macro terror, the animated one. Yes, we watched this as an animated version. So, what were your thoughts on the macro terror? What score did you go this? Um, I gave this a five point five. Um, so they're in- steadily increasing by point five each time. <laughs> um, I the macro terror is it's it's memorable in yeah. a way that those others aren't. And I remember the crab people and, yeah. you know, the room with the controls and all of this and, and the attempt to do a sort of fascistic society. Um, and yes, there's a lot that's not unex- there's a lot that's not explained. This is the first one where the doctor just leaves everything in rubble, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, there we have lots of problems with the script, but it is sort of charming in this kind of campy 60s way and i remember mm. it so what did you give it uh i guess a five again and again it's sort of like, like there's, a, there's some good stuff in this um uh, it's the fact that like i said the ending sort of leaving it in rubble and stuff but more so i'm impressed with the animation i think the animation is good i think they do a good job it works well um i can't the i find the doctor kind of forgettable in this if i'm honest um, which is a real problem. Uh, you know, Troughton's fine, but I remember the companions better. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the names, like the dude in the kilt and the other, like you know, and that, and that sort of the, you know that whole idea of them being swayed and brainwashed and then betraying them and sort of like, the dynamic between them is quite good. But generally, sort of like I say, the whole Doctor is is relatively forgettable. Um, so it looks good. Yeah, it's fine. It's a good one. I mean, you know. I'd be interested to know more about Troughton, though. I think I'd go back and watch a couple more of Troughton just to see him as the Doctor, I think. Well, we'll have to do more episodes at some point. Mm. Uh, Inferno. Inferno. 
Yeah. So the, the Austin Powers Doctor. <laughs> uh, Pertwee. This one's interesting, actually, because although he sort of like ribbed on this one quite a lot, the second half of this, the bit in the alternate mm. reality and stuff, I actually really like and I, I, I do think about. Um, and I like some of the concepts in it uh, and how it used like, alternate versions of characters. I mean, the whole drilling thing seems odd although it seems to be it could possibly be true now that they're going to do you know drilling down to use thermonuclear energy or whatever um but apart from that like i think there's elements that are quite good i think there's you know the the sort of the um there's some good bits of tension and things with it so i actually gave this a six Mm. it's it's starting to work up where i'm like yeah i I quite enjoyed this it was quite it was it was at least it made me chuckle in some areas as well Oh, that's fascinating. I think I think my impression is very similar to yours. Um, and in fact, I use uh, uh, track.tv, I, you know, this, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the, an app. And I so I keep track. I try to keep track of every show and every movie that I watch. And you can track multiple times and everything else. Um, and so I went back and actually saw what I had rated, um, you know, all of these episodes in, in preparation for uh, this wrap up. And Inferno is so split for me because those early episodes are like four or five, you know, just like, I'm not enjoying this. This is really hard going. As soon as it goes into the mirror, mirror universe, you know, it's like, yeah, it's still sort of daft, but it just works. Damn it. It doesn't work. And the character, the actress is having so much fun playing evil. and. Yeah, the whole device to blow up the earth is is not great. And I think the final episode is, you know, sort of more back down to a, a five or a six. But those episodes, that, that group of like three episodes that's primarily in the alternate universe are like the a seven for me. They're yeah. really, really strong. So I average that out to a six. Yeah, as well. I, I feel I feel exactly the same. I mean, the fact it ends with that sacrifice where he gets transported back and they're left like death by lava, like mm, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. It was really well done. Um, right, uh, big staple. Yeah, big staple. Genesis of the Daleks. Genesis of the Daleks. Uh, what did you give this? Uh, I gave this a six mm. uh, as well. So uh, everything is 0.5 higher and higher, <laughs> and now we're. At a six, and I feel bad about that because I know everybody loves Genesis of the Daleks. I think maybe it's because I've seen it too many times, mm. um, but I don't think I was ever as taken with it. Obviously, you know, obviously the fascism, and I love the Daleks, and you know, uh, you know, the uh, Davros is is very memorable, mm. but it it feels like a smaller story than it should be. Like you know, it feels. I don't know. It doesn't live in my memory as as exciting as I'd like it to. What about you? Well, I give this a seven. Um, big for, for almost for the because I don't think I have seen it as much. I think I've, this is probably the third or fourth time I've seen it um, over my lifetime. And so, but there's so many sort of ideas in this one as well. And I like I kind of like the fact that like you know it's not a TARDIS-driven story is in sort of like, you know, oh, the TARDIS is broken down. Like, they are, like, kidnapped by the Time Lords and been sent, like, if you want your TARDIS back, you're going to do this mission for us. Um, I, I think I think Davros is is great in this. I think the guy who plays him is fantastic. I think the, the, the concept and the design is, again, going back to the, the iconography, like, they just know how to make an iconic character. 
Um, and so I love all that. There's some moments that don't work. I think when you look at sort of like, you know, um, uh, the scallards and they use all this sort of, you know, or if you turn it around, it's Dalek and stuff like that. It gets a bit mm. silly. But um, the two, um, the war and stuff, I like the fact that, you know, it has this commentary and the, the pointlessness of war that we've been fighting for so long, almost like we don't know what the war's about kind of thing. It's it's never like we said before. It's never um, groundbreaking in that you know dealing with those issues. But I like the fact that they're introducing it and, and using it. And I, I kind of like this Tom Baker. He's kind of fun. Um, you know, the, the scene where he's been scanned and tested. He's like you know they find he's got two hearts and all that kind of stuff. Is is quite a good film. But the elements of comedy and stuff. So yeah, no, this one works for me. Um, and I can sort of see why it's held up as a as a um, as a classic. Earthshock. Very good explanation. What do you think of Earthshock? Yeah. Earthshock's an interesting one because again, I think it's a it's a it's a story of two halves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's little bits that I find interesting in the caves, you know, the sort of like the T one thousand looking robots and stuff, all all fine. But this doesn't get good until they get on the ship. So sort of like the set the second half of it is actually a lot better for me than than the first half. Um, and but again, I I, I don't. Davison's an, is a tough doctor for me. Like I, I, I sort of find him bland and a little, yeah. Um, and also the sort of like the other what was his name, Arik or or what's mm-hmm. the, the the lad's name? Adric. Adric. Sorry, the sacrifice. The, the sorry, the sacrifice. I say in inverted commas that he's supposed <laughs> to make at the end that has no object or point to it. Like I find disappointing. Uh, so really, Earthshock to me is dropping down again to a five point five. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh- yeah, I have a. I agree with you about the division. Like you know that that the once they get on the ship, it's better than the caves, and it's kind of like Inferno in that respect. Yes, although not as divided. Like there, it's just not enjoyable to really good. Here, mm. it's like interesting but not quite working to, you know, good but not thrilling. Um, yeah, but you know, I think with Urshak, um. You know, I think it's kind of forgettable, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I think I what I remember is just feeling like this is a radical step up for Doctor Who. Mm. You know, from start to finish, I feel like it is in a whole different universe than even Genesis of the Daleks. Like we're suddenly in a thoughtful, mature universe on a level that I none of the earlier episodes began to touch. Uh, you know, right from the beginning. Uh, Audric is fighting, the companion is fighting with the doctor. And yeah. they talk about taking the refugees on the TARDIS to take them out of the cave. It's like, duh, why have mm. we not thought of any of this? I mean, there's interpersonal con- and then a companion is killed at the end. Um, so, I mean, even in the cave stuff, I mean, the bomb exploding stuff is sort of silly. We don't know the Cyberman's plan. You know, I mean, it's clever having the ship go back in time you know but and destroy the dinosaurs but it's tacked on it doesn't really work it's kind of like but those are the kinds of things that you see like e- even in comics as superhero mm. stories are maturing but they're not quite you know that, watchmen and yeah. dark knight anymore but they're doing cool things and letting characters fight and so this is sort of um for me a story that maybe as a whole you know the the sort of um gestalt of the story mm. is not as good, but it's 
but it's taking Doctor Who in these directions that it, it's never been in that are thrilling to me. So I give this a six. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that. Okay. Vengeance on Varos. Right. Uh, this is the uh, other fascistic one mm-hmm. um, where, you know, we have the, uh, you know, mandatory voting and uh, that silly Zyton 7 and all yeah. of this. Yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't stick out in my memory very much. But when I when I reviewed it uh, for the show, I thought, yeah, I, you know, I enjoyed that. And I had to decide between a five or a six and I gave it a six. Mm. No, I actually went slightly higher on this because I think there was there was uh, again like this is another one where the doctor's fine. Uh, this version of this Baker Doctor and this one's fine, but I kind of like I like the setup. This idea of sort of like you know pure democracy that like they have to vote on everything sort of thing, and and but then the punishment for the for the you know the leader if he doesn't go his way, mm-hmm. um, but then also the fact that they're trapped in this. Um, commercial agreement almost that they don't sort of fully understand where they've been played off you know oh, your mining ore is, isn't that valuable i'm doing you a favor by selling it sort of all this is is i actually kind of like some of that stuff but but the thing that tipped this over for me was the the couple that are basically sort of almost like narrating this from the perspective of someone within this society um and they have that almost conflicting relationship <laughs> about voting, about the leader. And the fact that this episode ends on that note of the Doctor leaving and he's sort of like, you know, when this no brave new world that they've got to, and they're going like, well, what well, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. And it's sort of left on that note of like, oh, well, we don't know, where do we fit into this? Um, I really liked. And so the Doctor's almost like, again, like a, you know, perfunctory in this sort of thing, but the rest of it really worked for it. So I actually gave this a 6.5. Wow. Yeah, I, I like all of those aspects that you, that you mentioned in sort of this take on a sort of fascistic state, but that has mm. this democratic thing and, um, you know, the leader sort of rebelling. Yeah, it's still it's still clunky in places. Um, yes. Yeah, I, I think your your scores are sort of more reflecting a closer to a sort of traditional Doctor Who fan take on it. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm glad to defer to that, and I, and I just want to acknowledge that because, um, you know, that is, you know, it, it's important to recognize. Um, what about Remembrance of the Daleks, 1988? Yeah, I think this one, um, because I think McCoy is my favorite Doctor, like the Seventh Doctor is my favorite classic Doctor at least, um, and. The, the the thing is, this story sort of gets like oddly complicated. I like this. There's so many elements I like. You know, like the fact he's going back to this era to sort of pick up this thing he left when he was the Hartnell Doctor, and as you said, that touch of nostalgia. But you've got Ace acting as this sort of like counterpart, going like, "What? What? What do you mean? The sixties are crazy." Um, you know, she's still young and naive. She gets betrayed and feels the emotions of it. Like there's some good bits, and, and also it's quite action packed. Like you know, the Doctor's a bit darker in this. Like mm-hmm. there's the um, we get to see the inside of a Dalek and all this other stuff. These these cool little elements. Um, however, one thing I would say is this one does feel a little overlong mm-hmm. at times. It's got some great scenes in it, and I love some of the sets. Like, we actually see like a ship landing a school playground and stuff. But it's it's one of those weird ones where like. 
it feels very i think you said it before about closed off like, this is a massive thing like a, a spaceship is like you've got like daleks mm. fighting in the streets and there's <laughs> no there doesn't seem to be anyone around or anyone's talking about it like it's all very bizarre um but i like mccoy in it i think he's you know Sylvester mccoy is very good in it i remember i remember him as a doctor i like his relationship with ace um, there's other bits I like. So this actually, to me, again, I'd say is, is a seven. Like it, this one hits me quite sort of. I enjoy it despite some of the um, issues that it has. What about you? Yeah, I think it's interesting that both of yours that were seven were the Dalek ones. Um, mm. And, you know, I also found myself feeling that those two were a, a little higher. But in the end, I rounded uh, I rounded this one off as well to a six. Mm-hmm. So uh for me everything genesis of the daleks on you know is a some close enough to a six that it gets rounded to a six yeah um and i think like here again i think the stuff that i like about um even though you gave this a higher score than i did but i think the stuff that i like about Earthshock that makes me give Earthshock a higher score that i see the show is maturing and it's doing mm. stuff that was unimaginable earlier I love that it's going back to the original. You've got Daleks fighting in the streets. Mm. You've got that ship coming down. You've got uh, the return of Davros. You've got, um, you know, that, I mean, that school is weird and it does, that school feels very closed off. Yeah. Um, But, you know, you've got the inside of the Dalek. You've got, you know, all this stuff that is really cool. It doesn't kind of all come together. I know what you mean. I, I agree. But it's doing stuff. It's really mm. trying. It's, you know, sort of swinging for the fences in a way <laughs> that earlier Doctor Who was not. And mm. so I, I sort of give it credit for that. And those are the things that I really remember in my remembrance of remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's a good point. Like it's swinging for the fences is that thing. I think really when you think of the last three, considering that these were supposed to be the death now, this is the these 80s is when it sort of falls off. Although I have the things in Earth Shock, I say it's a very split story. It is most definitely a step up in quality and writing and stuff. Those sort of Earth Shock, Vengeance and Virus and Remembrance of the Daleks does feel like a sort of like a next stage. Um, and it does make me wonder, like, you know, we could go on and you talk about sort of the, the final season of the McCoy era. You know, there's a couple of good, like, you know, there's some odd ones, but I really like Battlefield. It ends with Survivor. Um, there's some really good ones in there. And so, like, for me, I always wonder like, if this hadn't been cancelled, mm. like, where would it have gone? Like, how how would it have evolved? You know, beyond eighty nine, like into the nineties, like what would have happened? I'd be very interested to see. Sort of, you know, it'd been fascinating to see like how this would have carried on beyond that. But I don't. Know. Yeah, it's, I agree. Uh, I think it's fan, and I agree with you about Earthshock, Vengeance on Barrows, and Remembrance of the Daleks, all sort of evolving in a way that the others weren't. You, I mean, there is this this pace of, you know, quickening. And, of course, these are, it's interesting, you and I love 80s stuff. Those yeah, yeah. are the 80s yeah, true. episodes. And, you know, in the same way that, you know, movies evolved, comic books evolved, I can see that maturation going mm-hmm. on as, you know, you sort of go through the Claremont and the social justice stuff of the 70s, right? And then you're moving into sort of, you know, early revisionism, you know, there is that kind of um, rethinking going on. Uh, and I really admire it, even if the end results, looking back today, uh, are a little clunky here and there. Yeah. 
I do wonder if we got into the 90s, if we would have had something like we've talked about, of like the doctor being confronted by his past um, errors and stuff, you know, like there seems to be like the macro terror having to go back and finding out that it was an absolute disaster and these other things. Like maybe, you know, um, that's the 90s felt like that kind of thing, wasn't there? There was sort of like, you know, the Cold War was over. There was no sort of um, real, you know, ideological threat going on. It was a period of relative peace. I wonder if they'd have taken the doctor in a different direction as a representation representative of that. Really. But I bet they'd have made him younger as well. I bet the nineties yeah. would have been the first time they'd have made, they'd have, you know, gone younger. Mm-hmm. I bet um, so too. I also bet that it would have taken. I mean, Doctor Who was a, a few years behind the, the times, uh, mm. but I bet a few years after it was a hit, watch the X Files conspiracy stuff come in, and it would yes. be like. Oh, you know, the younger doctor in the 90s who's had more of a conflict with his past would be like, you know, ah, unit was up to some shady shit, you know? Yes. Uh, well, that, that does come this kind of torch. I was going to yeah. say that's, that that does get touched on again. And, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I think you think you're right. I think it would have been interesting. You know, I think there'd have been a very different um, doctor. Uh, come the 90s as well but talking about that we will so that's our period that, that that's our sort of thought i think we've, we've really gone to town i think on on the doctor in, in this <laughs> this episode i think i know i have i gotta say i have absolutely loved this conversation because it has gone absolutely everywhere um <laughs> and it's been fantastic in doing so so i hope listeners i hope you've enjoyed this and our retrospective um it's been real good fun thanks for listening don't forget our our patreon after this uh, mm. We are going to do both the uh, uh, Curse of the Fatal Death short um, from uh, before Doctor Who relaunched, um, but also the TV movie from the 90s. And those are going to yes. be, for quite some time, Patreon exclusives. They will so, be, yes. And it will be about, about an hour each, but we are going, yeah, we're not done with Who. So go over to Patreon and they will be available. Um, and obviously, so are all our other Patreon benefits. If you like more of what we're doing, especially if you do like, like what we're doing with Doctor Who, go check out our Twilight retrospectives. Not Twilight Vampires. God, no, 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 no. <laughs> the Twilight Zone, I should say. Our Twilight Zone retrospective. We're going through episode by episode, doing a breakdown. We're well into season two now. We've been going through that, and it's been absolutely fantastic. I'm the newbie to this. I've seen you know the odd one here and there, but uh, you know Julian is sort of. Um, the the sort of the obi-wan if you will taking me through sort of these episodes and they are fantastic um but on the main feed on this feed here we are done with our retrospective we are done with season three this was the season three bonus and we are about to venture into something very special uh we're about to kick off uh season four okay season four and uh, Julian and I made sure that this was something special. We are doing a, a bit of a sort of, um, we wanted to make sure we covered a, a great period of time. So this actually covers from 1930 to 2020. So you're looking at like 90 years of sci-fi history going on. And we're also not only doing some new stories, new films, because it is all new films, but we're also doing some sequels and some sort of re- revisiting some franchises and stuff. Um, and I am going to give you a quick rundown now of all the films that we've got coming up. Are you ready for this, Julian? It's a big yes. old list. It's amazing. I, 
<clears throat> so just imagine 1930, Dr. Cyclops, 1940, Godzilla Raids Again, 1955, The Fly, 1958, got some Vincent Price coming in, uh, Alphaville, 1965, Fantastic Voyage, 1966, THX 1138, 1971, Logan's Run, 1976, The Empire Strikes Back, I say we're coming back to Star Wars, 1980, Outland, 1981, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 1982, <laughs> Howard the Duck, 1986. The classic. Yeah. Uh, the Running Man, getting some Arnold Schwarzenegger. We've done Stallone, now we're doing Schwarzenegger, 1987, Waterworld, 1995, Dark City, 1998, The Iron Giant, looking forward to a cry through that one, 99, <laughs> Battle Royale, uh, 2000, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, 2008, Transformers, the Bay, we're getting the Bayverse, uh, 2007, Time Crimes, 2007, Tokyo Gore Police, 2008, uh, Hard to Be a God, 2013, Blade Runner, 2049, really looking forward to that, and Possessor, 2020. That is a hell of a list. Uh, and it's I will be posting uh, what a, what a, um, an ambitious season, us really committing to what we've done before of a long dive into sci-fi history, but on an even grander scale with a lot of yeah. foreign stuff mixed in and sequels and comedy that's animated. Uh, we're going to love it. Yeah, it's a big old season. It's, I can't wait. It's some great stuff. Going back to 1930 as well it can be really interesting. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. You know, and then we're going to be doing our wrap-ups along the way as well. So... We're off to the races, ladies and gentlemen. In the next episode, we are going to be doing Just Imagine from 1930. So jump in and, you know, we'll try and track it down for you. So make sure we can find some versions of it so you can watch it. I'm sure it's on YouTube or others. We'll just let you know. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very, very much for sticking with us. It's been a long, old episode, but I think it's been worth it today. Uh, but Julian, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for... Uh you know, giving me a reason to go back and explore some Doctor Who. That's good. We may visit Doctor Who again. We might jump into TARDIS. We might do some new Who. We'll see. We'll see what we think about that. Um, but I will say, you know, you upper class git, you know, <laughs> as soon as I walk in those blue doors. That's right, yeah. The Lord of the Manor and his little <laughs> blue box. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us on this trip in the TARDIS. Uh, and we hope you join us on the next episode. Uh, when we do just imagine see you soon